and good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening, whichever the case may be on this rotating globe. Welcome to another edition, live from the land of enchantment, of the other side of midnight, that magical time between dusk and dawn, where everything is up for grabs and is fair game, up to and including what Art Bell told me many, 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 many years ago when he conned me into doing this show. He said, Dick, he said, never, ever do two things on your show, politics and religion. And tonight we're going to do both because art is not around except in a hyperdimensional realm. And I do not say that lightly. Uh, We have evidence. In fact, uh, toward the end of the show, Georgia and I are going to have a conversation about the most astounding evidence far beyond my personal uh, experiences over the last several years since Robin uh, so untimely left me in a way that was still it's uh, I can't really talk about it. But I know she's somewhere. And the reason I know is because there is communication between dimensions, although the bandwidth appears to be really, really low. And we will define all those terms as we go along. So tonight we're going to fuse, I really shouldn't say just religion, because it's much bigger. It's, it's, it's even bigger than spirituality. It's metaphysics. Remember, meta, everything. The everything physics, that's what the physics of hyperdimensional reality is all about. It's the whole nine yards, the whole Megillah. It's everything they wrote and then some. It's the whole ball. How many more cliches can I think of on the fly? Anyway, we're going to get into all that. And we have a very interesting field of players who have very strong and opposing points of view. We will all keep it civil. We will try to provide evidence to support our positions, as diverse as they are. And maybe we'll all make it through the evening and come out alive on the other end. I keep thinking of Art saying, never, ever, ever. He had very bad experiences when he delved into politics on the air. So hopefully tonight, given that we're kind of approaching this from a very, very different angle, I think it's probably unique in a world where that word is so overused our approach tonight to the 2020 midterm election is i can almost guarantee you unique in a world where that word is incredibly horribly overused so without further ado let me direct you all you new listeners um a lot of people i know have come over from uh, georgia's show on coast to coast because i was on monday night for a couple of hours and georgia very graciously Let me plug this weekend, and the weekend shows are actually kind of connected. And I'm I'm sure I can hear some of you saying, wait a minute, what connects hyperdimensional election analyses with the Artemis One first return mission of a human-capable spacecraft in 50 years? What could possibly connect those two events in time and or space? And I can answer you in one word. And we will obviously amplify this as the evening progresses. The one word is women. Kind of leave it there for the time being. So for all you new people, let me tell you how the show works. We have a very, very interesting homepage. You have been to it. That's how you got here if you're listening to us. 
At the top of the homepage, there is a banner which says very boldly in the way that Kintia can only do banners, and we're so lucky that she's still able to do those. Um, it says, against the backdrop of the eclipse of the moon, the total lunar eclipse that occurred on the evening, actually the pre-dawn hours of November 8th, before the evening, the afternoon, the evening rolled around. Uh, total lunar eclipse, November 8th, 2022, Eastern Standard Time. And the title of tonight's show, Hyperdimensional Debrief on the 2022 Election. So you click on that banner, that takes you to the guest page. Right under the banner on the guest page, you will see where it says um, to listen to the show. Then it says guest page. Under that, it says fast links to items. Those are links directly to postings that various participants in tonight's show have posted in their section down on the page. So for you know, quickly getting there, you click on my name. That takes you to my section of radio with pictures, and we shall begin. Um, number one, the first link is to the Artemis One uh, blog, which NASA very gracefully has posted now for many years. It's only kind of gotten interesting in the last few months, given that um, they tried their first attempt at launching it back in August of this year. And there were various technical problems, primarily um, involved in the taming of liquid hydrogen, which is an incredibly tiny molecule. It's smaller than any other molecule in the periodic table. It goes through seals. It goes through filters. It goes through even some pipes it will go through because it's really, really, really tiny. So having quick disconnects where when, when you're filling the tanks uh, with hoses and there has to be couplings, like in you know, filling your gas tank, mechanically arranged so that when the rocket is leaving the ground, it does not take the hoses with it. <clears throat> so that's what's called a quick disconnect. The problem is that if you have anything less with liquid hydrogen than a really permanent connection, uh, a seal and a coupling and all that, um, it's really, really difficult to get the quick disconnects not to leak. And there are very stringent boundaries on how much those seals can leak because hydrogen and oxygen in the same environment are explosive. And all it takes is one little spark and you have another Hindenburg on the pad. And if hydrogen and oxygen in separate tanks were to mix on the pad explosively, the result would be the equivalent of a tactical nuclear weapon. This was true back in the days of the Saturn V. And I remember when I would used, used to watch, uh, you know, a lot of the Saturn Vs. I was incredibly lucky as part of my uh, job with CBS. I got to go down and see a lot of launches from a little over three miles away. That's the distance between pads 39A, which now, of course, Musk and SpaceX uh, are, are renting, and 39B, which is the new moon port uh, launch pad. Um, 39A, 39B, A, B, 1, 2, 2 into 39. Oh, my God. 19 point, I mean, come on. NASA cannot do anything without a hyperdimensional ritual. Get used to it. If you're new to the show, you're going to hear a lot about it with evidence because that's, uh, that's how they roll. So on Monday night, um, 
uh, I'm sorry, Wednesday morning, Tuesday night, Wednesday morning, really, really early. Uh, they were supposed to launch at 104 on Wednesday morning, East Coast time, the Artemis One unmanned mission after several attempts because of leaking hydrogen seals from August through um, November. Oh, and uh, a couple of hurricanes, one of which required them to roll the stack, as it's called, back to the vertical assembly building, actually the vehicle assembly building. You'll remember the uh, the joke that uh, Kennedy made to James Webb when Webb was taking him around Cape Canaveral way back in the 60s when they were building and bulldozing and pouring concrete and building America's first spaceport, um, James Webb and the open convertible. As they're driving by launch pad 39A, I believe, uh, on, I'm sorry, back to the VAB, he said, and here, Mr. 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 President, here is our vertical assembly building. And Kennedy kind of looked at him sideways in the Cadillac in the back seat. And he said, well, that's great, Jim. How do you assemble a vertical? From which NASA immediately changed the name to vehicle assembly building. Still the same initials, VAB. <clears throat> but it was called vertical because for the, for the first time in the history of rocketry, the Saturn series that would ultimately launch the Apollo spacecraft, the uh, command module and service module and lunar module to the moon, was not assembled in a horizontal way, which had been the way rockets had been assembled before, first stage, second stage, third stage, and then lifted into a vertical position. They were literally mated, the term is used, um, in a vertical position in the vertical assembly building, ergo the name that James Webb immediately when the uh, president called his attention to the kind of inexplicable, how do you assemble a vertical, changed to vehicle assembly building. And you can file that trivia away because you'll never hear it again. Well, maybe not. Anyway, so if you're in item number one, which is the uh, Artemis blog, you click on that, that takes you to the Artemis blog page and right there at the top of the page, you will see this really interesting wide angle view of the um, uh, Orion spacecraft en route to the moon from one of its color cameras mounted on the tip of one of its solar arrays. There are four of them, each about 25 feet long, extending out in a kind of a windmill pattern. And they can be changed in angle, they can be rotated, they can be moved so that they withstand the forces of uh, uh, mid-course correction burns from the rockets. Anyway, um, there are some videos that are available, some really amazing videos. And what we're probably going to do, since NASA will continue to change um, uh, this, uh, what you do is you want to scroll down on that page to where it says Orion conducts first spacecraft inspection exceeds expectations. If you click on that picture, that will take you to a Flickr link, which actually has three videos that have been downlinked from the uh, spacecraft as it goes toward the moon. If you look at that second picture, the one uh, in the section uh, posted November 18th, Orion conducts first spacecraft inspection, that little gibbous circle right above the solar panel, that's the moon, okay? And uh, it's, it's very small, but uh, this was taken about halfway between Earth and Moon. The Moon is really 
tiny. I mean, cosmically speaking, it's really tiny. But in terms of an Earth-Moon comparison, it's one quarter the size of the Earth. So it makes it the largest planet-satellite combination in the solar system. And even though Pluto has a bigger moon relative to its size, remember, technically, they um, uh, degraded the status of Pluto from planet to dwarf planet, which allowed the Earth-Moon system to regain its title of double planet of the solar system. More trivia. Um, 1A, right below item number one, this is really important. Uh, when, when I was at CBS, we would get these voluminous press kits, which were like everything you ever wanted to know about Apollo, the Saturn V, the guidance system, the navigation, the, the flight plan, what the astronauts were going to be doing moment to moment to moment. All of that was in this very large sheet of papers that we would put in these big loose-leaf binders. Remember those? And we would trek around and carry, I mean, Walter used to carry like five or six of them. It was, And then he would sit by the pool in Florida before we would get to the uh, to the pad and to the um, studio there uh, next to the vertical vehicle assembly building. And he would sit by the pool in the days ahead of the launches and read through all these incredibly thick, loosely binders that had everything you'd ever want to know about the spacecraft, the astronauts, the mission, the flight plan, the timeline, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, NASA has come up with a more abbreviated version of this old Apollo flight plan, and it's there in item 1A. It is the Artemis Reference Guide PDF. If you really want into the guts of the mission, you go to that, click on that, that will take you to the PDF, and you may enjoy at leisure learning all the trivia about this mission and why it's important that we follow it, particularly when we come on the air tomorrow night. We're going to be doing three hours on the Artemis mission and how it could break wide open the idea of ancient lunar glass artifacts all over the moon's surface. And so we will not take any more time tonight, but there is your homework for tomorrow night, the Artemis Reference Guide PDF. Tonight, of course, we're grappling with what happened last week, November 8th, uh, right after the lunar eclipse. You know how incredibly rare lunar eclipses are on Election Day? Um, they're so rare that it never had happened in the history of the United States since its creation in uh, 1789 with the signing of the Constitution, uh, last Tuesday night, uh, actually Tuesday morning really early, was the first time ever, and the next time won't be for something like 350 years. So it was really unique. It was unique. And uh, Maria, Maria Wheatley, is going to be joining us in the third hour to describe from a hyperdimensional realm uh, measurements that she has conducted at Stonehenge when eclipses have occurred before to kind of limb out what happens during a lunar eclipse and why it's part of tonight's discussion related to the election. So that'll be up in the third hour, which takes us to item number two. Um, when I originally planned the show for last weekend, which was last Saturday, and then we had the major problems with the uh, uh, the computers. Um, we did not know 
uh, two things. We didn't know, I believe, if the Senate was going Democrat or Republican, and we didn't know if the House was going Democratic or Republican. Well, what a difference a week makes, because now we know that the Senate is staying in Democratic hands. We do have that runoff election between uh, uh, Warnock and uh, Walker in Georgia on the 6th of December, but that will add maybe depending upon which guy wins, either a Democratic senator or Republican senator to the roster, but it will not change the balance of power in the Senate. Um, It's always nice to have more than 50-50, which of course is what the uh, toll now is, and the vice president uh, breaks the ties when there are tied votes, which there have been quite a few in the last two years of the Biden administration. But in the intervening week, the House, which was up for grabs, has now, according to uh, news projections, it has been won with a, a, a margin of, I think, three or four votes. I haven't checked as of this afternoon, but I think they have a three or four vote margin, which means whoever is elected Speaker of the House, it's going to be like herding cats on steroids because it was amazing that Nancy Pelosi, Speaker of the House, was able to do the things she was able to do in the last two years with only a five-vote margin. As you know, the Democrats have been much more unified than the Republicans, who are all over the place with very uh, strong, very strong opinions, ranging from moderate to really far right. And so getting all those congressmen in line behind a unified speaker's position is going to be something which uh, will be to watch. However, it's how did the election results against all odds and all betting and all pundits before Tuesday night and the beginning of the counting, which has taken some counting is still going on. And this, of course, is uh, there's nothing nefarious about this. It's simply a measure of the lack of importance uh, in some states for the voting process. Remember, voting is not mandated nationally. It's not a, a congressional mandate. It's handled at the individual precinct level, literally tens of thousands of precincts all over the country vote um, boards of electors, their, their rules, there are state laws, there are local um, uh, regulations. It is an incredible patchwork of individual efforts and an incredibly diversified level. So for all those people who think that elections can be stolen, uh, it's basically impossible. For a whole bunch of reasons, it's, it's technically and politically and logistically impossible because it would require such a conspiracy that in an era where one person proving the conspiracy would be set financially for life, it's very hard to imagine scenarios where such situations can obtain. But I'm sure there will be some voices tonight on our panel that will claim that this election, like the one in 2020, was stolen. And my answer is prove it. Show us evidence. And better yet, take the evidence to court and win. The fact was the Trump administration took 63 cases to court relating to the potential for a stolen election in 2020, and not one of them 
made it through the legal system. They were all shot down or dismissed or proven to be wrong because the evidence simply wasn't there. And we're not going to relitigate the 2020 election. We have our hands full tonight by looking at what happened a few days ago in 2022. So um, what I'm going to do is go through a rundown of some of the things we're going to talk about because it's my position, my model, that hyperdimensional consciousness was responsible in major form for the incredibly anomalous results of the 2022 midterm election. Now, that's one of a number of hypotheses, and it's been kind of amusing to see all the pundits reversing course and trying to explain away the fact that there was no red wave, there was no red ripple, there was no red anything, and the results were incredibly diverse depending upon what region, what local elections we were discussing, ranging from state houses, elections for secretary of state, for attorney general in various states, for congressmen. Like in New York State, there was a whole uh, series, I think five seats, that were supposed to be solidly Democratic, and they switched to Republican. And no one can explain that anomaly, as well as a whole bunch of other anomalies. So by and large, what I've tried to enter into tonight is a serious, balanced discussion in kind of considering the unthinkable, which is there may be hyperdimensional forces at work in this election, and how would we see them? How would they manifest? Well, that's the subject of our conversation for the next uh, two hours and 10 minutes. Item number three, as part of looking at the various events that are happening around the world that are also incredibly anomalous, we are watching this extraordinary rise of protest in Iran. Remember, the Iranians are living under a religious uh, theocracy. The the Iranian government is brutal when it comes to dissent, uh, to internet connections, to women, what they wear, what how they dress, how they act in public. And recently, in the last uh, um, you know few weeks, one young woman <clears throat> was taken in for uh, violating the the dress codes the very strict uh, Muslim dress codes by the uh, theocracy, which runs Iran. And she never came out. She died in the police station and the police said she fell. And of course, uh, a lot of people think that uh, they just beat her to death because she violated these very strict uh, religious uh, precepts by the, uh, they're basically religious police that go around and police how women behave and how they carry themselves and what they wear and, I think her violation was that, you know, some hair was showing or something totally absurd and obscene, and she's dead. Well, that triggered a wave of protests, primarily by women, to our underlying theme of the night. Women who have decided they have had enough. And now the analyses, which you'll see there in item number three, there are serious observers who think that Iran, the government of Iran, the theocracy of Iran is on the edge of perhaps full-scale revolution, even falling, changing hands 
primarily because women all across Iran are saying enough is enough is enough. Item number four. Um, this is from The Guardian. The Ukrainians, um, the literally the day of the election, they've been looking to take back territory that was uh, stolen from the, the state of Ukraine by the Russians going back to 2014. And Russia has occupied some serious major regions of the country. And then, of course, um, this spring, uh, I'm sorry, last winter, uh, they had a full-scale invasion, almost 150,000 troops and tanks and all of that. And there's been this eight, nine-month battle, Ukrainians against invading Russians to retain their, their territory and to take back what the Russians stole in 2014. Well, there was a major city in the southern part of Ukraine called Kherson, which the Russians occupied early in the, in the, in the current war. And it has been a focal point of contention between the Ukrainians and the Russians uh, for the last eight months. Well, literally the day the U.S. midterm elections, the Russians suddenly up and left Kyrgyzstan. And in the ensuing days, um, other uh, Ukrainian forces have moved in, liberated the citizens of Kyrgyzstan, and now we're hearing all kinds of uh, horror stories about what happened uh, when the Russians were in occupation for those eight to nine months. My point of knitting these three events together under the hyperdimensional model is that each of them, in my analysis, appears to be the battle and the winning by one side or the other of forces between boldness, courage, and fear. And in each of these three cases, um, fear has been suppressed, courage has been manifest, and change has been the result. And we'll go through, I'm sure, in some detail uh, uh, these instances as we move through the morning. So we're basically down to about three minutes till the bottom of the hour. This is the perfect time to set this up. Um, the hyperdimensional cyclic model for both physical changes on Earth and in the solar system and well beyond, all over the universe, in fact, as well as the only consciousness we can measure at the moment is here on Earth, changes in consciousness uh, obtained through that same link, that same hyperdimensional connection, was first put into kind of um, institutional form uh, back in 1941, uh, by the creation of something called the Foundation for the Study of Cycles, which was uh, created by an economist named Edward Dewey, who was an economist that during the uh, uh, beginnings of the Great Depression from the 1930s on, um, actually from 1929 through the 30s and then into the 1940s, um, Hoover, when he was still in in office in, as the president, he turned to this economist, Edward Dewey, and he basically gave him a mission. The mission was, and Dewey had a rather sterling reputation, if you go to that link, you will find connections to the Foundation for the Studies uh, of Cycles website, 
That'll show you the founders. It will show you all kinds of back history and legacy material and archive uh, input and papers and writings. And, you know, I've, I've connected primarily to the journal because this is the uh, encapsulation of Dewey's uh, popular book that he wrote in the 1950s, basically the, called The Case for Cycles. And what Dewey found, much to his shock and surprise, um, we're going to have to wait until we get to uh, uh, the next part of our program, which is, whoops, 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 too many pops there, which is because we're at the bottom of the hour. You're on the other side of midnight. When we come back, I will finish my uh, explanation of how the Foundation for the Study of Cycles provides the backdrop for our entire conversation this evening in terms of what Dewey actually found. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. And welcome back, everyone, to this Saturday night edition, November 19th, 1119 of 2022, and our discussion tonight of the hyperdimensional backdrop in our model to the 2022 midterm election. As I was saying uh, before we went to break, if you look at number five, there is a, a link to the Cycles Journal, which is published by the Foundation for the Study of Cycles, which uh, after his sojourn with uh, Hoover, who was a president desperately trying to figure out what had happened to the American and then later the world economy. Um, Dewey was a very bright guy. And what was more critical is he was a very open-minded scientist because to his surprise and eventually his shock, he discovered not only that economies 
worldwide are cyclic. But he discovered that there were a whole number of other phenomena on Earth which were equally cyclic. And then the real capper, they all appeared in terms of separate bins of cycles to be synchronized, which was a stunning discovery in the 30s and 40s, something that no one had anticipated. And we will obviously uh, talk in, in terms of detail as we move through the morning as to what this could mean and the evidence and the data that it's founded on. And all of it is based on, uh, on that number five link, the, the foundation for the study of cycles and uh, the summation in um, Dewey's bestseller, which eventually was actually uh, published as a paperback. I, I have a copy um, explaining what he found because, um, well, tell you what, let's, let's start with something very familiar. If you look at number six, this is a diagram going back many, many decades showing cycles of sunspots from 1870 to 2010. And you can see that they rise and fall. The height of the little red, uh, yellow uh, vertical lines is an indication of the number of spots counted on the surface of the sun in any particular day. And they go up and down, you know, they fluctuate, but they rise and fall in an envelope uh, of an 11-year encapsulation. Every 11 year, years, sunspots peak, and then they go to a valley. They almost disappear. In fact, some years they do disappear. And for months on end, there are no spots anywhere on the surface of the sun. And then the next cycle begins, and the surface is populated by more sunspots, and they rise over the years, and then they peak um, 11 years after the preceding cycle, and this goes on and on and on. And the number of spots can vary per cycle. You can see the graph there, particularly where it gets very tall. That was in the 1950s, 1957, I think, was the peak of sunspots recorded in the modern era, and they've been falling somewhat since. Uh, and this this cuts off at 2010. We're now another cycle past that. And uh, uh, this was one of the best graphics to show the rise and fall over the last uh, you know 100 years, give or take. So I use that. Okay, one of the really interesting things about the sunspot cycle is that they don't appear simultaneously as they begin to come back after the old cycle has ended and the new one begins, they don't appear everywhere on the surface of the sun simultaneously. In other words, they don't appear at the equator and at 45 north and at uh, 10 north or whatever randomly. They appear as a series of high latitude sunspots above 33 degrees north and south latitude. And then as the cycle progresses, as you come to the maximum part of the cycle where the peak of the yellow spikes in number six reside, that peak coincides with sunspots appearing at, wait for it, 19.5 degrees. The, the peak of sunspots over and over and over appearing in the 11-year, give or take, sunspot cycle is 19.5 degrees. And the guy who first figured this out 
who noticed it, who wrote it down, was a solar astrophysicist named Parker. And if that name is vaguely familiar, Parker, Dr. Parker, has a solar probe named after him. He's still with us. He's still alive. NASA contravened, you know, 50 plus years of its own history by naming the Parker Solar Probe, which using gravitational encounters with the planets Venus and Mercury is, is losing energy so it can dive within a few million miles of the surface of the sun, hiding behind a conical carbon fiber heat shield where the surface, the front surface temperature of the shield at its closest approach to the sun is going to be almost 3,000 degrees Fahrenheit. And the only material which can survive that high temperature and, and not disappear, not evaporate, is a carbon uh, composite, which is what the heat shield, a very large heat shield, tens of feet across, behind which the spacecraft, the Parker Solar Probe, is hiding in the shadow of the sun shield. And again, Parker's unique contribution to solar physics, which of course is why NASA named its solar probe after a living scientist in contravention of all their previous, uh, you know, naming things after dead scientists, safely departed. No, Dr. Parker is still alive and well in his mid-90s, and his claim to fame, certainly uh, at the top of my list, is that Parker identified first the rise and fall of the the solar sunspot cycle. It's actually a cycle of all kinds of surface activity, the rises and fall and synchronization to sunspots. Sunspots are only one aspect of the uh, very um, dynamic surface of our nearest star, the only one we can look at and see details and map geography and fields and coronal flares and prominences and coronal holes and all that. Well, if you look at the bottom, uh, that weird diagram at the bottom of uh, uh, image number seven, this is called a butterfly diagram because when you plot the position of sunspots as they appear during the solar cycle, uh, latitude, which is up and down, against time, which is left to right, each cycle, the sunspots work their way from high latitudes, you know, minus 33 for the southern hemisphere and plus 33, give or take, in the northern hemisphere. And they work their way toward the equator uh, and they peak the, the number of sunspots and the number of flares and coronal mass ejections and all that peak uh, at 19.5 north and south. And then they continue down with diminished activity toward the equator. They don't cross the equator. They just kind of fade away. And for several months, there will be no sunspots. And then the next cycle will pick up again at high latitudes. Well, if you look at number eight, this is cycle 23 and the current cycle 24. Cycle 23, you can see, goes from the mid-90s to about 2009. And then cycle number 24 is 2010 to the present, through the present. It ends there in 2020 because this is when the the diagram 
that I, I, I chose to, to illustrate this ends. The cycle is still, of course, continuing. Um, but again, it starts at high latitude. You can see there 40 degrees, give or take 30 degrees, and then it narrows down to uh, 19.5. That's where the peak is. But you see, this diagram doesn't show the peak. It shows the overall appearance because they make their way toward the equator and then they recycle and they start the count for the next cycle. What's really amazing is if you look at nine, this now is a series of images of the sun taken over the full cycle by one of our uh, uh, solar spacecraft. I forget which one. But you can see the clustering of the sunspots north and south um, with the maximum uh, size and area and extent of sunspots being at 19.5. Um, number 10, this is now general surface activity. This is coronal mass ejections, X-ray flares, visible light flares, um, flocculi in the chromosphere, ejections, coronal holes, all of the activity on the surface of the sun mapped against the solar latitudes, north and south, and the peak again, look on the right there, is 19.5 degrees. Here's where things get really interesting. Look at number 11. Click on number 11. This will give you a full comparison between the sunspot butterfly diagram on the left and a diagram of cycles on the Earth's surface, beginning with climate and meteorology and including a lot of other cycles which are uh, uh, described in the, in the, in the book uh, that uh, Dewey wrote, uh, item number, what is it, item number uh, five, okay? But this, is, this was discovered by a Dr. Leonard Wing. Uh, it's called a longitudinal passage diagram. It's in essence the same geometry as the solar butterfly diagram to the left and what Wing found, to his amazement and confoundment, because he had no idea what he was looking at, what he found was that the progression of cycles on the Earth, all different size cycles, five-year, three-year, 10-year, 15-year, 100-year, whatever, they followed the same butterfly diagram geometry. They start at high latitudes and they work their way in both hemispheres toward the equator exactly the way the solar cycle manifests itself on the surface of the sun. Implying, obviously, there's some kind of identical physics driving both phenomenon. Dewey couldn't figure it out. A whole bunch of other scientists have been at this now for decades. They haven't figured it out. I'm going to have on, I believe in the next uh, week or two, a scientist from the original founding of the foundation who has been working on this for you know, 60, 70 years. And he hasn't figured it out, but we're gonna have a lot of fun and a very enlightening evening discussing where the hyperdimensional model might in fact provide finally after decades, an explanation for how you can have butterfly diagrams of different cycle phenomenon on a star 
and a planet orbiting that star and it's not intrinsic to either body, either object, it's some kind of higher level physics manifesting in the phenomenon available on both objects, even though they're radically different physically, one being a 10,000 degree Fahrenheit uh, ball of plasma and the other being a habitable, solid, rocky body known as a planet, in our case, known as Earth. This, to me, is the most important discovery of the foundation for the study of cycles, and it leads us to item number 12, which, as you know, was my discovery, uh, or noting the fact it was discovered all over the world, and it was published, but no one seems to understand what it means, in the COVID daily death count. And for the first time in human history, we have the technology to have people tabulated dying anywhere on the earth within a few days of their death through the internet and through these international uh, collaborative efforts by doctors all over the world. <clears throat> we find, if you look at the uh, upper graph, that's the world curve for COVID deaths. If the second one is North America. The third one in blue is Brazil, and the final one at the bottom is Europe. Those vertical orange lines mark the peaks and valleys of these cycles, and deaths of humans due to COVID-19 were manifestly visible all over the planet in synchronization with a rise and fall in a period of seven days. And before you say, oh, that's the week, no, it's not because it was not aligned with weekends or weekdays. It was a separate cycle, totally apart from the terrestrial calendars in, in, uh, in evidence all over the planet. So that's one of the things I'm going to bring up with my guest and see if the foundation can bring its resources to looking at these cycles and try to figure out um, at long last why there appears to be, and I think it applies to everything, every life and death, not just COVID. I think the only reason we see it is because COVID mattered and all the other deaths on earth at some level do not matter and they're not tabulated. But my feeling is that life and death itself is on a seven day cycle, regardless of species, consciousness, um, location, whatever, which means we have two simultaneous geometric patterns going on on the planet at the same time and it's an enormous field for study and nobody yet seems to be studying it which of course is all background to what i'm going to propose uh, for the evening which is that the election um, that occurred in 2022 the midterm just a few days ago was affected by three hyper dimensional events which occurred uh, on earth and that is the eruption of this extraordinary Tonga explosion that took place at 19.5 give or take in the South Pacific on January 15th of this year uh, and you can see that from item number 13 and 13a there's a location of the Tonga uh, volcanic explosion the the Scientists are saying it was a volcano. Um, there's all kinds of reasons to believe it was not just a volcano. And so it's time 
to get to our guests. So I'm going to call up as our first guest tonight, David Sarita, because David and I did some work on um, on this uh, uh, very very early in the game, just when the volcano was erupting. And um, David is is a very interesting guy. He's another generalist. Uh, he participated in our uh, extraterrestrial communications efforts. Um, he lives in Canada. Um, he is uh, he's made films. He has produced documentaries, Quantum Communication, The Voice from Here to Andromeda, Hope for Humanity. Um, he has been on hundreds, if not thousands, of radio and television shows from Art to George to Jimmy Church to John Wells, Shirley MacLaine Show, Alan Handelman, uh, Alan Eisenberg. He's been on the History Channel. Uh, he's done UFO specials, Seeing is Believing in 2005. Um, you can read everyone's bios on the on the website tonight. So without further ado, let me start by talking with David about the Tonga explosion because we now have follow-up data. And David, am I right or am I right that there was something so baffling and unique about the Tonga explosion that it deserves to be first in our litany of unusual anomalies that may in fact have affected the midterms in the United States? Well, to what I, what I said to you recently was right. We had the the uh, the lunar eclipse, which pulled me out of my sleep. I didn't even know there was a lunar eclipse, and I, I get in front of my computer and I go on space weather, and I woke up just in time for the peak moment of the lunar eclipse, and then totality. At this, yeah, at the start of the election, there's an earth, a new earthquake in the Tonga. And the innermost ring is 19.5 degrees <laughs> in this new earthquake. And I sent, I was so excited I sent it to you, and I didn't even know about what you would be leading into here with 19.5 degrees. That's incredibly interesting about the sun. And and it's it's so shocking because you go back to this mega um, event that we talked about um, months ago, um, which you know, when an explosion like this occurs, it's not, it doesn't have like an epicenter as precise as the head of a pin. It's, it's like there, there's a whole region and, and a single degree, I think is about 69 miles. And that, that one occurred, 19.5 is within the explosion, 20.6, which is the Royal Cubit also is within the closest, you know, part of the center of the explosion. I mean, again, it's it's the fact that right upon the election, we would get another. And this was a 7.3 earthquake, by the way. This wasn't a small earthquake. This is this is at 19.5 degrees, 7.3, right at the start of the election. So I found that. To well, be, let let me interrupt because if you look at my items, 14, 15, right. And 16, um, when, when the first evidence of this eruption was of the ocean, and it was caught on several satellites, so we have incredible time-lapse video, it appeared as a cube. Explosions don't normally appear as cubes. They're spheres with material blasting out from a center at you know transonic velocities, why was this event a cube? Well, of course, it turns out that a cube is a 
double tetrahedron, and we have cubical or six-sided craters all over the solar system. And I'm now thinking that this was done deliberately. The cover story is it was an underwater volcano, but in fact, someone detonated a hyperdimensional window, a device, a conduit between dimensions at 19.5 on Earth in January. And when you say to yourself, well, why would they have done this? I believe going back to uh, Leonard Wing's butterfly diagram for cycles on the planet. And George and I have had these discussions over several years now. Hyperdimensional effects do not manifest themselves instantaneously all over the world unless there are very special circumstances. Wings diagram, just like the butterfly diagram of sunspots, which evolve over years. So if you're doing something on Earth at 19.5 and you want the effect to propagate north and south over time, over ensuing months or even years, you do it in a way that 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 hyperdimensional shock wave or transmission or gate or whatever you want to call it between dimensions opens wider and wider on a time delay basis. So on the basis of your calculations, the maximum effect takes place in terms of the events on the earth you're trying to affect. And again, in the model that this was done to change the consciousness of the earth, because geologically, yeah, it produced this huge plume and it kicked up a lot of water vapor, but the effects on the geology and meteorology of the planet quickly went away. I think the effects on consciousness have lingered and they're still going on. Well, what, what interests me even more is when we were, you know, back when this happened, we were tuning into our radios at uh, 432 megahertz and 144 um, megahertz, 144.1 megahertz. Yeah, we were conducting and, our ET communications experiment. Right. And and well, I did some research in the interim since we've been on, you know, I was on the show last. And this is quite shocking, but when you go to the birth of the justice system and you think of Moses and the Ten Commandments and Moses and Aaron going going up onto the Sinai, I calculated the wavelength of Aaron's breastplate, and it's exactly 432 megahertz, not 432 kilohertz. It's 432 megahertz. So as a square wave, and it's a third of a cubit per side, it's a wavelength of four, and I've done the math, it's 432 megahertz. So we were, we were working at that frequency, and in fact, for some reason on my radios, I'm getting constant um, chatter at 432 megahertz, and I'm getting nothing at 144. So, well, remember all... Michael Michael Hill's experiments with water and his geometric plates that Beverly Rubick measured in her laboratory in Berkeley, California, and said that water energized by his geometric plates, which are tuned to 432 cycles per second right so that's 432 so there's just factors of 10 right and and when i when i look at yeah the, which are called the, in 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 sound analysis or electromagnetic theory or whatever it's called frequencies harmonics right so you can 
So then when I measured the, the sapphire, the, actually the breastplates, I mean, sorry, the plates that carried the Ten Commandments, which is the birth of our justice system, really. It's really the foundation of it. They, they're made of pure sapphire, which is an aluminum, you know, oxide, uh, ox, oxide crystal, and which is almost as hard as a diamond. And so you can't imagine somebody chiseling in with a hammer these Ten Commandments because that's not going to work very well because you got to hammer into something almost as hard as a diamond. Well, wait, wait, but wait. The, you, you but know, the measurement, you, the measurement of the wavelength is actually a square wave, and it's one four thirty two megahertz. So it's one. Four three point two megahertz, and and the fact that that Aaron's breastplate is four thirty two megahertz, and that's one four three two megahertz, is and that's what we were working with our radios, and and were we did we get a a hyperdimensional impetus at four hundred thirty two megahertz during the Tonga, and again why at the start of the election, we get another earthquake in the Tonga at 19.5 degrees. It's 7.3 earthquake, which is, which is not all very, I thought there was going to be a tsunami actually in that one. Um, and so that's what I've been, I've been working on. So the when system the, in January was pinged in a huge way. And then right. eight, 11 months later, right at the election, it's pinged again. Again, in the Tonga, it's it's not it's not the exact spot, but it is it is 19.5 degrees is right in the inner ring of the epicenter. Well, of remember the these, I, I, in, when you're dealing with real physics as opposed to theory, it's always an area, it's always a window, it's always a volume. Right. It's never right. the exact number because real world stuff is always approximate. Well, when I say Nineteen point five degrees approximate. It's like ninety nine point eight nine or nine percent <laughs> accurate. So I mean, you can't do better than that on a sphere twenty four thousand some odd miles around, right? It's 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 incredible. It it really is, it, and it's very meaningful. Well, it strongly implies someone did it, and then to make sure that the effect carried through, they did it again. And we are at the top of the hour, so we need to pause. My guests this morning are too numerous to mention. We will go through them as we uh, uh, go through the morning here. Um, This is just really, really interesting because we're dealing with hyperdimensional physics, which, of course, in the hands of those who know how to use it, is hyperdimensional technology. And as we've said, based on our work, it not only affects material objects and processes and interchanges and energy flows, it affects consciousness itself. And that's what we're pursuing this morning. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland with a raspy voice. We shall return. Other side of midnight.com. 
Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hoagland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. Welcome back, everyone, on this uh, Saturday night, November 19th, 2022. My guest this morning, uh, we started with David Sarita. I want to bring Georgia on now because I want to lay the foundation, as the lawyers always love to say, for this cockamamie to most people idea that hyperdimensional events can actually influence mainstream political developments and events on planet Earth. And I want to kind of set the background. So, uh, uh, as you know, Georgia is our kind of resident metaphysician. She spent a decade or more with uh, Manley Hall there at the uh, center in Los Angeles. Um, She is the most interesting metaphysical generalist that I've ever met. And I keep throwing her these problems and questions, and she comes up with answers. Georgia, are you there? I am here. How are you? <laughs> okay, let me let me lay out the kind of premise, which is, um, for many years, I have said the good are getting better and the bad are getting worse. And the reason for me saying that is I viewed this connection to a hyperdimensional reality as kind of a connection in a more metaphysical vein to source. That if we here in 3D are kind of virtual reality projections of where we're really hanging out right now, which is a hyperdimensional place um, that's kind of unknown and maybe in our limitations unknowable, at least in the degree that I would like to know it. Um, if you if you view the connection between dimensional realities, kind of like where we really are, and this projection to 3D where we think we are right now, If you open and close that gate, if you change the bandwidth, if you make the signal stronger or weaker, the connection to source, the connection to who we are in a higher dimensional state space goes up and down. It gets stronger and weaker, louder and softer, that kind of thing. Um, You're with me so far, right? Mm Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking that this connection is neutral it's kind of like an amplifier where you know when you have music playing or a radio program or whatever it doesn't really matter what is on what the opinion is of the people on the radio um whether it's uh well you won't get into specifics but the point is 
The amplifier's only job is to turn up and turn down the gain, making the signal, the communication, the consciousness coming through more or less, uh, depending upon uh, what the conditions are, right? So if the change of connection is being modulated not just by the normal background cosmic cycles of the solar system, and this is where Rick Levine's uh, astrology comes in, because in, in my model, the astrology is all hyperdimensional. The planetary positions relative to the center of the galaxy, their, their position relative to each other, their various spins, their processions, all of this produces this incredible complex set of waveforms who ultimately serve to expand or contract this signal-to-noise between source, a higher dimensional place or state, and what's going on on Earth. And it doesn't apply just to conscious beings. It applies to everything, everything we think of as reality. And that goes back to Dewey's discovery of all these cycles, many of which are synchronized. And there's no reason why the stock price of steel and the times when lemmings you know, migrate and dump themselves over a cliff should be synchronized. And Dewey found out that they are, that they were. And he was baffled by why could something so totally, totally different appear to have some common connection? And then he died, and there hasn't been a lot of progress in figuring out what's the basis of these cycles that he painstakingly tabulated for the last several decades. And that's what I'm hoping to open the doorway to a discussion when we get uh, my guest on this coming weekend or maybe the weekend after, who is old enough, he's in his 80s, to have been around when the foundation was in its heyday and he knows what Dewey was thinking because they talked. So back to how this physics could work. If it's basically neutral and it only is turning the amplifier up and down, then it basically amplifies whatever is in the being that is being affected by the change of the gate, by the change of the connection. Okay, with me? Mm-hmm. Okay, so if it's doing that, then in people who are centered, who are courageous, who, are, who know themselves and know why they're here, who may even know their mission, it will amplify that and make them more courageous, more mission-bound, more determined, more of their identity in 3D. For people who are fearful, who are hiding under the bed, who are paranoid, who are thinking that everybody out there is, to, is out to get them, in other words, who basically go through life being quaking with fear, it will unfortunately amplify that because that is the being on the other side projected into 3D in this model. So at the very basis of the application of this model to the election, what I propose could have happened, which contravened all of the discussions of red waves and the cycle normally, the administration uh, newly elected suffers horrible defeats in the House and the Senate because everybody wants to vote for the other guys because after two years, the first guys haven't fixed everything, so they get the blame. So the guys say, okay, we'll bring in the other team and maybe they'll have better luck you know, than these guys. 
that kind of thing. This year, for the first time in almost 100 years, that cycle, with two exceptions, in 98 and 2001, was contravened. And we know in terms of 3D politics why that was so unusual that it was not operated on to the way the historical model would, would work in the previous 100 years for 98 and 2001. I'm sorry, 2000, 2004. Um, yeah, 2004. But in this midterm, with every proclivity in favor of a radical Republican revolt, a red wave. I mean, the last super Democratic red wave occurred when Obama was elected two, two years after his election. 63 seats changed hands in the House alone. Something similar was all that's happened in the wake of COVID and Afghanistan and all the real world political stuff that those who follow politics know all too well. Instead, the Democrats retained the Senate and they lost the House by a couple, three seats, which is radically against the predictions and invokes something else going on. So in this model, in a very simplistic way, I would say connected to events that are happening in Iran and events that are happening in Ukraine, that the courageous people were motivated through this expanding gate to get out and basically affect the outcome of the election. They were motivated. They were, their spines were stiffened. They were excited. And we saw that in some of the polls in the few days leading up to the election where the Democrats had been lagging numerically like 10 points behind in terms of enthusiasm. And in that final week, the polls, which of course you can't trust, but enough of them were saying there was a change in the trend. And a lot of people who were kind of experts deep inside said something's changed, something's different, something is not the way it was earlier in the summer. All the real world 3D stuff, not with, and so my model is that these three waves of hyper-dimensional expanded bandwidth, the first one being Tonga, the second being the pinging of Tonga, as David has just described, the third being the NASA DART experiment, which blew this little satellite of uh, Dimorphos to kingdom come and liberated an extraordinary pulse of hyper-dimensional physics or connection whatever, and then finally culminating the day of the election with a unique lunar eclipse, which Maria will come on at uh, hour three and tell us what that should have done to the system. My, my prescription, my, my model is that those four events triggered enough of a connection that the politically mandated three-dimensional analysis was thrown by the board and we got the remarkable consciousness anomaly in the election that we all saw. Where am I wrong? (laughs) Um, I have actually two points to make. Uh, The first one is that uh, when you're talking about pinging things on that particular day, Uh, We talked about this on another show, 
that that particular day, the day of the full moon and the eclipse, was the full moon directly across from the full moon of May, which in many places of the world is considered uh, a very potent descent of spirit. Um, It's the Buddha's birthday, and it's when the Buddha comes closest to the earth in, in, of course, the Buddhist traditions. The six-month moon after that is the anchoring or the grounding of everything that came in in the spring. And it's never uh, landed on election day. It did this year, which means that on that day, all over the world, not related to our particular election, but there are groups of diverse lineages meditating and invoking humanity's higher self on that particular day. Um, so that certainly is a piece in the stew of, uh, of causality. So that's point number one. Point number two is a little bit dif- difficult to explain. You know how growth isn't smooth and gentle. It, it comes in spurts. There's a spurt ahead and then there's a period of sort of, uh, digesting and and uh, and anchoring the growth that's been made and then there's another spurt ahead and so on and so forth and we also know metaphysically that our outer life and affairs is a reflection of our inner life and affairs so consciousness grows in spurts um, as an independent this is why it's vital wait, wait, wait. You, you, you mean the you mean the change is not linear or a smooth curve. It's, right. it's quantitized like the energy levels in an atom. It, it, exactly. It, it, it steps up or sometimes yeah. steps down. Yeah. So let me, let me lay this out here for a minute. So if outer life and affairs is a reflection of inner states of consciousness collectively uh, as well as individually, then... Uh, it's important from a metaphysical point of view to realize that both of our political parties are equally absolutely necessary to the growth and development of the consciousness of this nation. Traditionally, and of course, we're in a time when nothing is traditional, (laughs) but traditionally, uh, the Democrats, particularly in social areas, have been the leap ahead. Uh, towards civil rights and women's rights and cultural changes and that kind of stuff. The downfall of that is when they go too far ahead to forward in relationship to the mass consciousness catching up and they lose touch. The other side of that, you know, the two points that make the friction is the Republicans traditionally – again, not necessarily traditional anymore, but traditionally have been the stabilizing, anchoring uh, frequency that allows those leaps of consciousness to move into the masses, to get embodied, and together they work together. As long as they're sort of close together in that uh, ideal, things work great. When they start diverging, 
like two poles of a magnet getting further and further apart from one another. When they start diverging, uh, they get very polarized, which is what we see today, and it's like a rubber band ready to break. In that case, the center is activated, and the center starts to make its voice known and begins to bring the two poles back into some semblance of working together rather than seeing each other as the enemy. And I think this election began that uh, pulling back together. It's not going to be pretty, but um, these two forces must work together for consciousness to evolve and grow. Well, if you look at the published manifesto on the part of the Republicans with their slim majority now in the House, they have decided and they publicly proclaimed they're not going to address inflation or crime or any of the big issues that appeared to be at the top of the polling list when when pollsters were asking you know the electorate well, what do they give a damn about why were they going to the polls and who were they going to vote for in terms of candidates you know supplanting or or, or responding to their to their needs instead the Republican leadership has said in the House that they're going to have nonstop investigations of the current administration, the Biden administration, from Hunter Biden to the secretary, to the to the attorney general, to the secretary of uh, 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 Homeland Security, to all kinds of of hearings and, and, and committees, chairman and, and panelists on Republican side delving deep into everything but what the American people said they wanted them to pay attention to in the election. And I don't see a kind of a softening and coming back to the center in those prognostications at all. But but that's in the short term. I'm, I'm looking at, you know, a, a longer uh, cycle where gradually, again, the polls between um, – uh, the forces that leap ahead and the forces that anchor have become so divergent and so polarized that the center is going to have to start making its voice known. And we see the beginning of that. It's not going to happen in, a, in, the, in the short term. But Can you define what at, you mean by short and long? Because politics goes on cycles. Six, I, I know. Six, six it, years for senators, two years for congressmen, four years for the presidency. We've got two years till the next major election that's going to be nonstop Republican efforts to destroy the, the Democratic uh, administration of President Biden. How do we get consensus out of that? Well, again, by the, pobul- the public voting and making their voices known. And again, uh, it's imperative that both parties return to their basic mission so that they can work together. And that is not the situation today. And that's why the general public uh, is going to gradually bring that about. How long will that take? Depends on the choices that the general public makes. Well, they really came through in terms of voting for democracy. And it's so funny because when the president made a couple of speeches in the last couple of months on democracy, the other side said, oh, People don't give a damn about that. They want get lower gas prices. They want lower food costs. You know, they want bread they can afford again. And they're very short term, you know, fundamentally tied to a material cycle of 
stuff. And the electorate all over the country in every state demonstrated that people are much more complex and they're much more in tune with the idea that this American experiment is unique on Earth and is too precious to to be allowed to go by the wayside. And they kicked out the radicals left and right. Not one election denier running for secretary of state in a red state, which is critical. Uh, I'm sorry, in, in, in a swing state, which is critical for 2024, won. They were all eliminated by very healthy margins, which tells me that somehow people got in touch with something higher and they had a longer range vision and understood that without a democratic foundation and the ability to vote, nothing else matters. And that's really what I was talking about. You know, when Rick Levine was on, we talked about the astrology of this. And I think there's going to be a lot of friction uh, until after 2025. And then, uh, as Rick Levine said, the astrology opens up to great leaps forward for humanity if we can take the opportunity. So Mm. we'll see. Mm. Okay. Um, Let me bring on Robert Morningstar because I think we need to hear from what I'm presuming will be arguments on the other side. Uh, Let me give you a kind of a brief background on Robert. Uh, He is a uh, civilian intelligence analyst. He's an investigative journalist and a psychotherapist currently living in the best city on the planet, which is New York City. Uh, He's a specialist in photo interpretation, geometric analysis, computer imaging. He is a graduate of the Power Memorial Academy, was a New York State Region Scholar in 67 to 72 at Fordham University. And while at Fordham in 69, he participated as a research fellow in a U.S. Navy-sponsored program to develop artificial intelligence. He's also an FAA-licensed private pilot, and he's the current publisher and editor of the UFO Spotlight and UFO Digest. And uh, he's listed in Who's Who in America, Who's Who in Business and Industry, in Science and Technology, and he was a recipient of the marquee Who's Who 2020 Albert Neal Lifetime Achievement Award for his work and career as a civilian intelligence analyst. Robert, come on down. Hi, Richard. Hi, Richard. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. I've been enjoying the show. Um, About the politics. Yeah, let's get right into it. I'm happy with the outcome. Let me just say that I was dubious of the whole red wave scare. I thought it was a mass media terror tactic, which worked pretty well to scare the hell out of uh, indolent Democrats who might not have gotten out there, but they did. But I'm satisfied. Um, I I also agree with Georgia that there has been a movement toward the middle. Uh, The red wave did come in Florida, and it swept through Kentucky, where 80% of the districts went Republican. But I think the most... And and there were four or five seats in the center of Democratic New York State, which are now in Republican congressional hands. Yes, I'm going to talk about that, because personally, in the aftermath of the absence of the red wave, I've seen the Mockingbird media just go giddy 
saying, oh, you know, it never came. It wasn't a trickle. It wasn't this. It wasn't that. Well, folks, the Democrats lost the House. And as the saying goes, which Richard and I know very well and quoted, no bucks, no book Rogers. So they have been hamstrung. But the really devastating part of the Democrats' loss is the loss of Nancy Pelosi. And equally important, we were talking about New York, four, four uh, blue districts swept uh, and uh, went red, but the political demise of Sean Patrick Maloney is a very significant thing. He was the director of the DCCC, the Democrat, uh, Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, and he gathered up millions and millions and millions of dollars from many sources and now we're starting to see one of the main sources was this ftx uh you know it really disturbs me how cruel democrat writers can be (laughs) when one of their own has failed them um i have a whole series of articles or actually newspaper articles And uh, there's one really nasty one from Slate.com. It says, the inside story of Sean Patrick Maloney's face plant in New York. And he says, instead of taking his own race seriously, the DCCC chair snubbed grassroots support, went to Europe to court donors. This little sentence is very important because the FTX crypto scandal involved sending the money to Europe, specifically Ukraine, then funneling it back to the United States. A lot more is going to come out on that. But um, well, so, I, I, Robert, I just want to make you know very clear: these are assertions. Nothing has been proved. Nothing's gone to court, which is the ultimate arbiter of what we believe is reality, non-reality. These are all allegations. Well, I'll tell you what has gone to court is the extradition request to the Bahamas to send. Uh, little Sammy, Sammy back home to uh, face the music. So it's it's there. This is, this is the young prodigal, thirty something, uh, who ostensibly went from being a multi-billionaire one day to being mm-hmm. a pauper the next. When this uh, see cryptocurrencies, the whole idea of non-regulated currencies is kind of freaky, and it's like anybody who really thinks that something that isn't backed up with something is real it, it, it it's all magic anyway so i'm not surprised that it's collapsed because it's it's not real well you know the u.s government jealously guards currency and even if it's backed by under something, the constitution yes uh, like silver like silver remember about 20 years ago there was a guy named not house who started putting out uh, liberty dollars and silver and the FBI came down on him and just seized $2 million of uh, silver assets and claiming that because people were starting to use them as, as currency, you know, they were very beautiful coins, by the way. So anyway, let me get back. What I think has happened. Okay. Not, we've got about a minute till the bottom of the hour. So, okay. Not a red tide, not a red wave, but a slow moving red tide that is a harbinger of changes that are happening. And it's people going toward the center, as Georgia said. 
the consciousness of the country is moving away from the extremes and moving toward the center. And as a result, there was a lot of split ticket voting, right, where they would uh, vote for a governor of one party and then a senator or another official of another party. Mm -hmm. And the, you know, the giddiness that I talked about uh, is also targeting Trump. I think Trump is a smart cookie and, uh, you know, announcing his uh, presidential run. I I want to talk about Trump myself. So we're at the bottom of the hour. My guest this morning, so far, David Sarita, who's standing in the wings, Georgia Lambert, who's being patient, and Robert Morningstar, who so far has talked about politics in 3D. But given that Robert has some really interesting 4D and above ex- uh, experiences, I want him to lift his sights to the hyper-dimensional horizon, which we will get to when we return. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. If you touch that dial now, you're dumber than I think you are. The other side of midnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Support the broadcast and don't miss another groundbreaking conversation. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. on this Saturday night, the 19th of November, we are on our way to the moon. And tomorrow night, we're going to talk about what we can expect, what might happen. We're going to talk about what you can see. And I want you to record the videos and then do some work and then send them to us because there could be a lot to see. And then we're going to talk about surprises a major surprise that could occur during this outward-bound, powered, 
um, perihelion uh, mission that will boost the uh, Orion spacecraft into its very long retrograde direct uh, deorbit. You're on the other side of midnight. My guests this morning are uh, George Lambert and uh, David Sarita. And Robert, you were talking about uh, red waves and moving yeah. toward the center. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Again, if the house, the, the, this current you know, non-red wave electorate demanded basically be centered and be sane and address their problems, goes into nonstop investigation mode, kind of like the National Enquirer on steroids, in two years, not only are the Republicans going to suffer a, a, a shattering defeat, but the Democrats are going to win the White House and the Senate again, and it will not be in the center. It will be whatever the Democratic agenda is in two years with Republicans on the limelight for the next two years behaving very badly. Well, I disagree, and uh, an old saying comes back to to haunt me. What's good for the goose is good for the gander, and the the goose in the Congress has been relentless in attacking Trump, impeaching him twice, and now you know they are trying to uh, hamstring him uh, to prevent him from running for president in 2024. I mean, they they really dread. It's his own billionaire donors who are saying they're not going to fund him and he shouldn't run in well, 2024. That's okay. I don't care. You know, I I, don't, I think that. Uh, you know, perhaps Trump's time has passed, but he's playing a very high-level chess game. Uh, announcing his candidacy for president is a way of protecting himself, I believe, uh, from indictment. How, wait, wait, how does that protect him? There's all kinds of politicians, including... including hang on, hang on. Let me finish the question. All kinds of politicians who have been elected, who have been serving from... Mayors, I'm thinking of Curley in Boston, to a couple of Republican congressmen in the last few years, if they are indicted and if their case is brought before a jury and a jury of their peers finds them guilty, it doesn't matter whether they're in office or running for office or formerly served in office, they go away. Being, being a candidate does not protect you from anything. It does have to do with appearances, and the Democrats don't want to make it look like they are abusing, which they have been doing. They've been abusing the Department of Justice to persecute people. They've been going after people who sang outside abortion clinics. They've been going, they've even raided a guy who was investigating UFOs, and that's a a very disturbing uh, effect of a comment made by a certain Congressman LaHood from Indiana. He was asking during those conferences in Washington, is there any way that we can punish people who do these investigations of UFOs, you know? So uh, they raided the house of, uh, of a guy who's uh, studying Area 51. So I, I do believe that there's a lot of uh, abuse uh, going on in Washington. But well, let me go back. Hang to on, Robert. Your belief does not make it so. I just want to put that on the record. <laughs> that's what that's what courts are for. That's why I say I believe. I don't say is. Anyway, on um, on that Tuesday, election day, if it had been a presidential election with a popular vote, the GOP won the national popular vote, fifty-one point four million to 
uh, excuse me, 51.4% to 47.1, which is uh, winning by 4.4 million votes. But it's complicated, as this thing says. With regard to Trump, you know, they're jumping all over him and stomping him, saying he lost, he lost. Oh, well, he, you know, he wait lost. a minute, Donald Trump was not running in the midterm election. He backed, no, he, he backed candidates. Everyone who, everyone who he backed has lost, except for Herschel Walker. Totally wrong. You're totally wrong. The actual facts are that he funded. 174 candidates across the United States, not just congressmen and not just senators. He, he had 174 people running and he had nine losses. So again, the media is twisting the facts again, trying to, pa- to paint a little happy smiley face on something that's really devastating. Look, the Republicans were down, I think the, uh, the count was 208 to 219 in in the in the in the house and now they've come up to 218 or 19 to 216 you said three hey man that's a red wave no it isn't from 10 behind from 10 behind to three ahead they should have gotten 40 or 50 seats they're down with a less majority than than uh, pelosi had to work with well, I think that's, that's And fine. this is getting far too 3D political. I want you to lift yourself up to a higher dimensional level and address some of the things that we've been talking about for the first part of the show. Well, I do think that a change in consciousness is happening and that people are tired. They've been tired of all of the extremism on both sides and that there is a move toward the center. And I believe that this is possibly a harbinger of the possible formation of a centrist party in the United States. If conservative Democrats and uh, conservative Republicans meet in the middle, I think it is possible for a, a third, a viable third party to emerge that cuts off the radicals on both sides. Teddy Roosevelt tried that, and how did that turn out? Yeah, but and he know, was incredibly popular on a huge spectrum across the middle, and he couldn't pull it off. Well, he needed a new, a better marketer. Anybody who came up with the Bull Moose Party uh, was a sure loss, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> I think that was him. <laughs> well, and he was very egotistical for him to. You think? That. Anybody no, who just, runs for president, if they don't have an ego, they have well, a, they have it a prayer. Yeah, that's true. That's true. So anyway, the uh, the interesting thing for me is the movement toward the center, the split ticket voting, the uh, the demise of the political career of Nancy Pelosi and Sean Patrick Maloney. No, wait, 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 wait. About- Nancy Pelosi's career has not demise. She realizes that since she won't be speaker for the next two years, it's mm-hmm. pointless for her to remain at the at the helm. She's trying to encourage new leadership, a new generation, and what she did not do, which I find very interesting, she was reelected from her district in San Francisco, and she is staying on as an ordinary member of the U.S. House of Representatives representing San Francisco, and she is available for counsel behind the scenes. I understand perfectly. But if it hadn't been such an ignominious loss, there would have been no reason for her. Why is it ignominious? Ignominious? Three, three or four seats is not ignominious. 
a signal that he used to lose the house when you No, it isn't. Not when you're expecting a red wave. Historically, in terms of the pundits, in terms of the polls. That was hype from the very beginning. No, it wasn't. It's historical. In the last 100 years, actually it's 90 years, the only Uh two exceptions were Bill Clinton in 1998, and the reason was the, the Republicans impeached him, and the backlash swept in 40 or 50 Republic, uh, Democrats to completely contravene the, the off-year election cycle. And the other time was 2004 when Bush was, was uh, uh, you know, basically uh, uh, the, the downside guy. And Republicans, you know, basically creamed uh, – no, I, I'm sorry. It was, it was the 2008. It was, it was the 2009 election. It was when, when uh, uh, Barack Obama lost horribly. So there have only been two times in the last hundred years where that cycle, we're back to cycles, has not obtained. And I like anomalies and I like to try to figure out what's really driving anomalies. Losing the House in a year when you're supposed to be massacred by only three or four seats is not ignominy. It's not, you know, an embarrassment. It's simply almost breaking even, and her role has now receded by her own choice from speaker or even uh, you know, controlling the party to being a member of the House from San Francisco available for consultation. That's fine with me. I'll, I want to say something about the sympathy vote, the power of the sympathy vote. That uh, the election in uh, Pennsylvania with Fetterman versus Oz, that was uh, a shocker. And no, it wasn't. Oz was, a, Oz was a carpetbagger. He had no business running from New Jersey for a seat in Pennsylvania against the, against the lieutenant governor. Hillary Clinton was a carpetbagger, too. She came from Arkansas to New York. You know? And who says that was appropriate? Well, I agree. Both of us agree that it, neither one is appropriate. Remember, but, I, I said strenuously when, when Hillary and Trump were facing off, I said mm-hmm. on this show countless times, just check the tape, Hillary will not be the candidate. She will not be elected. Did I not say that over and over again? I recall that. I recall you. I was probably one of the few people that was not surprised that Donald Trump won the presidency. People, when they're desperate, will reach outside the box and try mm-hmm. anything once. Yeah. Well, I'd like to say a little bit something about the uh, prospective investigations. I think they are going to be significant, and primarily the Hunter Biden investigation, because the facts are there. And this uh, Ukraine situation is intimately tied into it, because Ukraine was, was the money, money laundering capital of Europe. And the, the children, if you want to call 40 or 50-year-old people children, of Nancy Pelosi, John Kerry, uh, were involved in these deals along with Hunter Biden. So the offspring of uh, Joe Biden, Nancy Pelosi, and John Kerry were big operators in this money laundering scheme that was happening. And now the evidence is in the, evidence is in the laptop. Everyone has been ignoring the laptop. Do you know who Tony Bobolinsky is? 
No, but I've heard about the laptop for months and months, okay, like, well, like a year. He was a partner. He was a partner. Okay, yeah, yeah, I remember him. him yeah, okay. Yeah, okay. Well, I'm just telling you that the facts are in in there. And uh, aside from the... But what uh, does this have to do with the red wave, blue wave, and what's going to happen when all the people who voted for Republicans, mainstream Republicans, particularly in those districts in, in mid-New York State, don't get what they voted for, which is sanity someone addressing their problems or kitchen table issues, instead a vendetta against the sitting president. It well, is vendetta, not going to play well. Democrats. The vendetta has been on the part of the Democrats since the day that... You president didn't answer Trump. my question. They did not vote for a vendetta. They voted for progress How on their problems. How do you know? How do you know? Because the Democrats that? that were thrown out and the Republicans elected were centrists. They're not radical. Yes. They're not, they're not Trumpists. Centrists, centrists have common sense. And if there is a, a vast well of corruption that's had been hidden for four years by the Mockingbird media, I think people are curious and the American public needs to know what was being done on top of the $80 billion that has been funneled to Ukraine. And then this funny business with the FTX with the money going to Ukraine and then coming back. And this uh, situation with Sean Patrick Maloney losing, as I said, face plant. But why did he go to Europe to get money for national elections here? There are a lot of questions that need to be answered. And I think uh, investigations are good. We have to investigate the origins of COVID. We have to investigate uh, the mRNA vaccine. There's a lot of investigation to be done. And I don't think it will hurt the Republicans. In well, I will make you a bet on the air on the night of November 19th, 2022, that after two years of vendetta, the election in 2024 is going to be an extraordinary blue wave for Democrats in the House, the Senate, and in the White House, primarily in opposition to the craziness they're going to see on television every single night on the basis of the Republicans for the next two years. Well, Richard, I think there's nothing crazier than, than the, uh, the kangaroo court. Is this down. a bet, Robert? Is this a bet? Okay, yeah, I'll bet you. Okay, so what are the stakes? Um, let me see. How about a good Remember, book? I am batting a 1,000 for all my political predictions. Congratulations. It's called a track record, meaning I may know something. I may know well, something hyperdimensionally, which I would like us to get back to because normal yeah. politics is very boring. We both yeah. have positions. We can't prove anything tonight on air. You know, I mean, look, uh, Merrick Garland just appointed a special prosecutor to look into Trump for the Mar-a-Lago, you know, documents, which are baffling and bizarre and how anyone can defend him taking thousands and thousands and thousands of pages of top secret stuff. I'd like to hear you try. That might be entertaining. And then, of course, there's the whole January 6th thing where the January 6th committee has laid out really remarkable evidence, which this special prosecutor will have to reinvent the wheel and go over page by page. And that yeah. is going to create an extraordinary soap opera, again, which most Americans will not want. Well, I think that what we're seeing is a change in consciousness. That's the, the important thing is 
that Americans have come back to center. We've been, I mean, wait, 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 wait. how can you say that? How can you I just, say that? You just said there was back. incredible overreach in the part of the Democrats. Now the Republicans are in, in the form of revenge are going to do the same thing in, in spades. I mean, well, Mar- Marjorie Taylor Greene, you know, she's salivating at what she's planning to do, and it's not going to be anywhere near the center. Hell, they couldn't find the center with a GPS. Well, I think it will be the center, and I think the investigations will be into serious matters. They're going to be into Hunter Biden's activities in China and Ukraine. What does Hunter Biden have to do with the president of the United States? Hunter Biden is a Hunter Biden is a self-admitted drug addict. He was funneling millions of dollars into his coffers. He was the front man for a vast criminal operation. Joe Biden was quote unquote the big guy. And if 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 Donald Trump, with four years owning the Justice Department, could not find the evidence and prove that in four years of his administration, knowing that Biden was his target, how do you think that the House, which will not even have subpoena power, is going to turn over any real evidence in their two years? The evidence is that is in the hands of the Congress. The problem uh, with Trump exposing it was that the FBI is political, was anti-Trump. No, it wasn't. The director of the FBI was appointed by Trump. The FBI, Christopher Ray was appointed by Trump. Called, Robert, stop it. Christopher Ray. Christopher Ray was appointed by the president, President Donald Trump. The director. The last time I looked, the director runs the CIA, the the FBI. Yeah, he does. But it doesn't mean he can't turn against the president. And he did call. When the laptop came out, the FBI called Facebook and told them, be ready, this is Russian disinformation. The Russia hoax was spawned by the FBI. The FBI offered... These, again, are assertions. Nothing's been proven. And there's been God knows how many investigations. Have you read the Mueller report? Why didn't you read the whole thing? And I, Well, I'm not interested in the whole thing. So you're not interested in evidence that might disprove your model. What evidence did he come up with that no charges were brought against Donald Trump? If he had any evidence. Because during the Nixon administration, when Nixon resigned, the Office of Legal Counsel in the Justice Department created a memo looking to see whether a sitting president could be indicted. And the answer they said was, no, this is not a Supreme Court decision. It's not enshrined in law. It was an opinion by the Office of Legal Counsel in the Nixon administration. And so instead of indicting him, the Watergate committee recommended that he be an unindicted co-conspirator. He resigned, leaving the question of whether or not um, you could indict a sitting president basically on, on, on the decision of a memo that's 30, 40 years old. And that's why Mueller did not bring an indictment against Trump. Well, with regard to Nixon's resignation, he resigned because he knew he was going to get impeached. 
That's it's as simple as that. So to avoid the, the disgrace of impeachment, he chose to, to resign, which was a wise thing to do because he now still has a lot of respect. Though, uh, <laughs> despite his, his denial, I am not a crook. Okay, um, we, we have three more guests tonight. Um, sure, go ahead. We've got Barbara Honiger waiting in the wings. We've got Andrew Curry. And, of course, George is being very patient. I want to go to Andrew because I want to – when we bring Maria on uh, at the top of the hour, uh, she and, and Barbara and Georgia are going to have a very interesting conversation about the effects of the eclipse. So I want to save that for that. So let's go to Andrew. Andrew, you're in Canada. You're not involved politically in any of this mess. Uh, as a foreign observer, what are your thoughts? Oh, hi, Richard, and thank you again for having me and everybody on the show. Well, let me start off with um, – I was on, on my – this will be brief. I was on my YouTube channel today, and up, up popped um, about 15 minutes worth of Johnny Carson from – I think it might have been the early 80s. And Walter Matthau and um, Jack Lemmon were on, and Jack Lemmon was on first, and he was talking about Matthau, and you know they're, they're jiving and having fun. But when Matthau came on, he goes, well, you know, when I'm in movies, I like to start arguments. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a New Yorker. <laughs> I like to get to know people by fighting. And you know what? He talked about a, a particular movie he was on at the time where he was causing all kinds of trouble with the director and the co-stars, and he got to know them. And there was much more emotion and a better piece of art made. So. I think on one level, just to come here and say this, is that we do have to have these discussions and we do have to sort of poke each other and we have to figure it out. Because honestly, Richard, my feeling is, and I think we've kind of alluded at this, is that there's something beneath all of this, all of this that's just uh, messing us up. And I, I don't know whether it's like we talk about in the physics or it's another element, but I do know, and I, I may be jumping way out there, but I know I, I've got maybe a couple minutes here. I, I related a story to you long ago, uh, not long ago, a hap to me long ago, <laughs> where it was one of the first times I entered the United States. And I remember I was with my parents. I was very young. And, and we crossed over into Washington State. And when I got out of the car and I stepped into this parking lot of this, wherever we were at, a mall or something, I was overcome with this feeling of being in like this different type of world. I mean, it was everything's the same it's it's the pacific northwest it's the same kind of environment that i come from in british columbia our province in canada but richard i had i mean the only way i could describe it is it was like i was in some sort of weird bubble that i was completely unfamiliar with well flash forward to my first son and the first time we took him down to washington state and he got out of the car and we were in a mall and he went oh and i said what and he was about nine or ten he goes why does everything feel fake? And I said, what do you mean fake? And he goes like, I'm in a bubble or a video game. And I said, oh my gosh, that's the feeling I had so many decades ago. My point is there's something very special about the United States. It is the shining beacon on the hill. It's an experiment and it's a promise. And however we work this out, we're going to have to figure out a way. And maybe the middle ground, that sort of, you know, um, Christ consciousness almost, you know, I think Georgia would have something to say about that, where you find a balance is, is the way forward. And, and I, if people want to have a little, a little bit of fun, again, I know we're getting close to the top of the hour. My first item is a little homage to the feeling I had. Um, I don't know if we want to go there, Richard, or people just go look it on there. It was a little uh, 
kind of a comic strip I quickly made. And I wasn't in, 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 in when you look at it, I have basically human type warriors fighting orcs. And I'm not suggesting that anybody in your political system is that, but it was just <laughs> the feeling of if people go have a look and you'll have some fun with it and you'll see the conclusion of that's how I felt at the very end. But yeah, Richard, I, I feel like this is, I've gotten to know all of you guys and, and more and more through our channels. And there's something incredibly important about the United States. It's, it is the light. It's the beacon on the hill. And somehow or another, we have to, it's, it's the promise that's been passed along. I've said this many times and, and um, you know, I know the United States, like the rest of the world is wounded. We're all wounded. We're all bleeding some way or another. We're all bruised, but um, we got to make it through. So I, I'm, yeah, that's my, my, my part that I wanted to add. Let me go back to the hyperdimensional model for a second, because if you look at my number 15, which is a, a three-panel uh, um, uh, layout, on the left is the Tonga explosion just breaking the ocean surface, cubicle, with five dots on the type, like a five dice. And yeah. David, David decoded the five, which connects both to D.C. and to Giza in a very bizarre way, and to the sacred cubit. The middle panel is the double tetrahedron, which, of course, when, when you go from a point in three-dimensional space to a line, how do you get up into that third dimension? The first figure in the third dimension that you form is the first platonic solid, you know, play those ge geometric forms inside a sphere. It's a tetrahedron, or in this case, a double tetrahedron because it mirrors top and bottom. The panel on the right is a photograph taken by an amateur uh, about a week and a half after uh, uh, the dark, you know, impact with uh, Dimorphos and, and Didymos. And the dust cloud expanded as a cube, as a double tetrahedron, which is a 3D physical signature of a hyperdimensional intrusion from four space or higher into our three dimensions. And that was accompanied, I think, by increased bandwidth timed to coincide to a month or a half before the election. And the question, of course, I have is, did NASA know what they were doing or were they were carefully manipulated into carrying out the experiment, thinking they were doing one thing by people behind the scenes who knew in fact exactly what they were looking to achieve, which was to increase the connection between consciousness on Earth before this crucial, pivotal election and the Force. And we've got basically a kind of a couple of minutes here. Uh, actually, we don't. We have 30 seconds. So on that note, when we come back, we'll have Maria Wheatley with us, and we will... Um, uh, bring back Georgia, and Barbara, who, of course, has experience in both realms, and she will describe what uh, I mean when I say that when we, uh, when we return. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We'll be right back. And Georgia just asked me a question. It's a hypercube in hyperdimensions. It's an ordinary cube in three dimensions.
TheOtherSideOfMidnight.com Talk radio with pictures on demand. Liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and non-linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 a day. Talk radio with pictures on demand. The other side of midnight.com. My, 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 I'm having a small problem here with my audio. Let's see if this fixes it. There we are. Uh, always those little breakdown problems. Okay, we're going to be joined now by Maria Wheatley. Keith is working on getting her connected. It's uh, early, early morning. We let her sleep in. I think it's like 7 o'clock uh, in the a.m. But Maria is a morning person. When she was here in the States, uh, uh, I wanted to have her do something uh, in normal time, New Mexico time. And it didn't happen because it was past her bedtime. While we're waiting for Maria to join us, uh, Barbara, you obviously have been listening patiently, and I understand drinking chocolate, which is very nice. Um, you are the only member of this panel that actually has a degree in hyperdimensional physics, better known at the JFK University there as what, a degree in parapsychology? Uh, can you hear me? Hear you five by. <laughs> Yeah, well, technically my degree, uh, the first ever in the U.S. or the world, in consciousness studies and experimental parapsychology. Ah. Um, but what, I, what I'd really like to focus on here is going to the truly high, uh, call it the eagle's eye view of this, hyperdimensionally or whatever you want to think of it as. Um, I actually not only believe but feel a massive massive not historical shift but her story shift there when you talk about needing balance on this planet the true imbalance has been between male and female on this planet in terms of authority power credibility patriarchy uh, versus matriarchy well not in my mind. Um, just just in terms of of the genuinely acknowledged equality of individuals, regardless of gender, and um, that's why uh, the the phenomenal success uh, of issues of critical issues in this election whether they were supported by the democrats or republicans i don't care what label you put on it but women won in this election um the women took power in this election and though i appreciate robert's um attempt to put a positive spin on what happens uh trump lost hugely 
Um, yes, you can say that, uh, sure, he gave a little bit of money to 174 Republican candidates, but the nine or so uh, election deniers, the election deniers that he pushed really publicly and went and, you know, got on podium with them and put his arm around them, they lost. And the election deniers lost. I mean, sanity returned in this election, and we are on our way back to a genuine balance. Um, between the genders, and this is critical. Um, at the same time that the Artemis mission, uh, shortly after the election, finally succeeded, uh, as you say, Richard, when the time is right, uh, history happened. Well, <laughs> Artemis was the twin sister of Apollo. Yep. And um, the Artemis, the first Artemis mission, Artemis One has succeeded. Um, also, what has just happened in America is profoundly personally rewarding for myself. And that is because, number one, uh, I held the gender equality portfolio in the Reagan White House and Department of Justice. And one of the positions that I held um, was as the executive director or director, if you will, of uh, the Attorney General's Task Force on Gender Equality. And one of the major uh, projects that we had uh, at the Department of Justice and the Civil Rights Division, which I headed um, for a couple of years, uh, was to open up, to further open up in that case, but to p- complete the opening of the U.S. Astronaut Corps to Women. And I'm, I went to Stanford University I'm a member of the advisory board of, believe it or not, there's an organization at Stanford University, my alma mater, called Stanford on the Moon. And um, Buzz Aldrin. Oh, my God. All that Buzz Aldrin and myself and some others, of course, uh, are on the advisory board. And, of course, I'm a, I'm a member. Um, but nine women from Stanford have become astronauts. They've gone through the astronaut program, beginning with Sally Ride. I was going to say, Sally Ride was a first. Sally Ride was the first. Yep. Yes. So, you know, this is a really big deal. It's a really big deal that uh, women's reproductive rights won hugely and surprisingly massively in this election. Um, Well, in in every state where, where women's choice was on the ballot, either in a positive way or in a negative way, uh, even in deep red states like Kentucky, Kentucky. Uh, women won. Abortion, abortion freedom, freedom of half the population to control their own bodies, their own destiny, their own economics, their own futures, all the reasons why abortion should be a personal choice between a woman and her doctor. They won regardless of the superficial politics, starting with Kansas. Yes, and that's because men, uh, enlightened men, and especially young men, came out in droves to vote for them. Uh, it's that, that's why the balance is returning. Uh, the youth of the country give me phenomenal, phenomenal um, excitement about our future, actually. Um, in, in, and I don't like the word abortion. I don't uh, either. To me, what that... But to me, what that issue is about, what that issue is about 
is the right to be an individual and only an individual. And to control your own persona. Well, just to be an individual. You cannot be pregnant and be just an individual, Richard. It's impossible. And the Bill of Rights of the United States Constitution are about individual rights. You have a right to just be yourself, and you have a right to do what's right for yourself. Uh, And that's true of men and women. It's true of, we want it to be true of every single person on this planet without any exception. So, so I'm just incredibly motivated and excited by the election uh, results, and I'm actually glad that the Republicans have taken over a very small majority in the House because I'm in favor of the hearings that are going to happen, the investigative hearings. I think that the truth should come out on all issues. Yeah, and I'm I'm basically in total agreement. I think that the next two years are going to be extraordinarily revelatory before the really big shoe, to quote um, uh, Ed, what's his name, Ed Sullivan, uh, because it's 2024 and 2025, which is in sync with uh, Georgia's uh, hyperdimensional Vedic calendar. Uh, you know that 2025 is when the Kaliuga is supposed to come to an end, right? Oh, that's good news. <laughs> well, maybe because it's not, because it's supposed to be very tumultuous and turbulent in these transitions. And look around. And the, the Trump four years weren't turbulent? We've already. Yeah, but that's part of the run up. In other words, these yeah. are not sharp lines, these are boundary conditions where you have windows where things grade one to the other. So uh, Maria has joined us, and the reason I asked Maria to get up at the crack of dawn, and we'll come back to you, Barbara, in a minute, is because uh, Maria is the only one who has real-world experience with the consciousness effects of total lunar eclipses. And for the first time in the nation's history, the third hyperdimensional event that I've charted now, the the Tonga thing, the DART mission to uh, Dimorphos and Didymos, where you can obviously see the hyperdimensional signature. And the third event was the eclipse, this precise alignment occurring in the weed on hours for the election, the polls opened, and then it kind of covered like a blanket the several days following. And so, Maria, welcome to the other side of midnight. And tell us about your experience at Stonehenge in monitoring the effects of lunar eclipses. Yeah, so the first thing if we look at lunar eclipses in relation to ancient sites such as Stonehenge, we need to think about the prime meridian line. And the prime meridian line currently is at Greenwich, and all the longitude lines come and spread from Greenwich. But if you choose a ley line that flows through Stonehenge and you move the prime meridian line to Stonehenge and use that... Would this be the so-called Michael line? No, 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 it's not the, uh, the, the Michael line that goes east to west across okay. uh, England. This is a north to south line that you would move from Greenwich to Stonehenge. And Stonehenge has a natural lake going north to south. And then if you divide the world up by 30 degrees, using that prime meridian line, as the very early astrologers did from Ptolemy's time in the second century AD, you get a land zodiac. You get all the longitude lines on Earth 
of the terrestrial lines equating to the celestial longitude above. And then you get a zodiac uh, from Aries right the way through to Pisces, for example. And interestingly, using this ancient genetic uh, zodiac, the Taurus Mountains fall exactly on nought degree Taurus. The Ring of Fire comes under Leo, for example. All the warring countries, such as England and other European and African countries, come under Aries. So using this zodiac, we can see the influences of lunar eclipses on lays and on Earth energies, generally speaking. So it's this kind of land zodiac which focuses on Stonehenge, which uh, one can use to determine where Eclipse goes. And if you look at the rising uh, sign of this zodiac, which is Taurus, which is uh, part of the, the zodiacal sign influenced by the last Eclipse, but that goes right through the east coast of America. And that influence uh, will kind of, uh, on a on an unconscious level, be there in the, the American psyche. And it's quite a feminine. I was listening to Barbara talking, and, uh, and as we know, Taurus is quite a feminine sign that can be quite, uh, quite empowering. So the lays and the earth energies at this time, they all go, like I've mentioned before on this show, exceptionally quiet waiting for a reboot about or up to 24 hours later, sometimes just a couple of hours later. So it's about recalibration of the Earth energy system. And that's why eclipses were so closely monitored at Stonehenge during phase one. So what would you propose the effect of the eclipse would be on consciousness in the United States where it was basically uh, early morning, like just after, just before the meridian passage of the moon to a couple hours afterwards. So it was kind of straddled both coasts. Yes, yes, it was in terms of the uh, the land zodiac. That would uh, imply greatly that there's going to be a rethink within the next few years, a total rethink of uh, and regeneration uh, as well. So it's about re, uh, rethinking, recalibration, and waiting for that kind of reboot time to come through again. So it could be quite a positive time if people actually really do think about their future and plan ahead uh, more long-term, because this is about long-term planning as well. So isn't that back to what I said at the top of the show, that the physics is neutral it amplifies what is there. So then it comes down to who is here or there and what is their mindset, their level of consciousness, their predilection. In other words, if you amplify bad, you get more bad. If you amplify good, you get more good. Doesn't the, the, the turnout on earth determine, is it not determined by which percentage predominates in a system where you have Voting. Yes, well, I didn't hear that at the top of uh, top of the hour. Oh, that's right. Well, you were you were still sleeping. Yes, I was still sleeping. But no, I agree. That's what the the, the zodiac or land zodiac uh, is suggesting, and that it was also mentioned earlier. I think you mentioned it was George, uh, Georgia, Georgia rather. Apologies uh, that said that you know 2025 is is a critical year. Again, in terms of the ancient sites across the world, actually, April 2025 and onwards is a an extraordinary time, the moon's metonic cycle returns 
after 18.61 years and is a real focus point at ancient sites such as Kalanish in Scotland, Stonehenge, Avebrehenge, uh, for example, as well. So that focus as well is building up to 2025 when the moon, the femininity uh, of the celestial eyes of the, the sun and the moon comes into very sharp focus. Okay, in terms of your geodetic world map, des yes. describe again what you've done is you have, have transliterated the celestial patterns, the constellations, to the Earth's surface, and you've got the time zones going east to west. You've got constellations at the very bottom corresponding to what in terms of continents and populations uh, above that uh, base plane? Yes, it was, uh, this is, you know, thousands of years old, this, this zodiac, like I say, going back to the times of uh, Ptolemy in the second century AD, where he used a prime meridian and divided the world up into 30 degrees that equates to the zodiac above using the ecliptic belt. So it's transferring the 12 signs of the constellations to the ground. And that's where, like I mentioned earlier, everything does seem to fit in. The Taurus Mountain starts at 0 degrees Taurus, for example. So it is a workable land zodiac that creates heaven on earth and allows us to see what goes on on the ground uh, is reflected in the heavens above. Okay, do you so remember it, the constellation the eclipse took place in where the moon was during the eclipse that night? Because I, I don't. Uh, the sun in Taurus. So the opposite would be, 180 degrees would be, oh, what was that? So where was the moon? That's what I'm asking. In Taurus. And, and on the, the land zodiac, that would be on the east coast of America. Okay, now you want to hear something really freaky? David, are you with us? David? Yeah, I'm here. Okay. Uh, this afternoon, me. I didn't have a lot of time because I was solving my electrical problems. Um, but I happened to look at the latitude and longitude of the Tonga explosion and then the kind of pinging again uh, election night. Mm -hmm. And then what I did is I plotted out an internal tetrahedron. Remember, if the 19.5 is one point of a tetrahedron, the other three can be mapped inside a sphere uh, in coordinate systems that are absolutely accurate mathematically, right? The thing that got to me, Maria, is that the second point, if you move east toward Africa or toward the Americas from Tonga, the second point and then the line going up to the north where the other point is, is exactly where your line is on the map at 60 going up alongside the east coast and the boundary to the west of that is, I think, Taurus. I think. Yes, yes, that's that's correct. That, that's Pallades, isn't it, Maria? Taurus. Yeah. Yeah. The, yes, the, yes, the, that's the, very close to Taurus. Yeah. Yes. Well, the Pleiades are in Taurus. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Maria, so, could I ask you a question? Yeah. Go ahead. Sure. Yeah, I just want to clarify. I believe I heard you say. Tell me if I'm wrong. I believe I heard you say that during the um, the final years of the Egyptian pharaohs in the Ptolemy era, 
that the that the Egyptian priesthood actually had their meridian line not through Egypt but through Stonehenge. No, the the uh, Ptolemy drew the prime meridian through uh, Aleppo. Actually, that's oh, where he had his his crossing line. What's done more in recent times is it was used in Greenwich, London, and yes. that's been transferred to Alay at Stonehenge is more natural. But in the early times, it was going through Aleppo, through a oh, white mound in Aleppo. Thank you. You're welcome. And everybody, Richard, can I say something about the eclipse? Of course, of course. I have seen a lot of eclipses in my life, but this one really affected me very strangely. Um, It made me dizzy. New York City started to spin, and I had a hallucination that the sidewalks turned to marshmallow. (laughs) (laughs) I have never, ever experienced anything like that. My gosh. Yeah, so uh, I have experienced Obviously, there were tremors in the force, Robert. Yes, indeed. Well, I just thought I'd share that. So something in the field was interacting and interfering with your field in a way that was very disharmonious. Well, you know what I think? Just now the idea came to me that the eclipse may have been affecting the fluids in my inner ear. Oh. How about that? Grab a talk about tides and gravitational forces. That's so, why you keep spinning, too. Yeah, that's why New York City spun about three times. And, but the weirdest thing is the sidewalks, which are concrete, turning into marshmallow. I've never. I don't a, think this is physical. This sounds definitely paranormal, psychological. Oh, absolutely. I've never, I, I'm sharing it because nothing like this has ever happened to me in my whole life. And it's a unique experience. And it was when the eclipse was about halfway through, not at totality. So uh, we decided to come home. We were very lucky. Well, you were what, out in Central Park? No, no, we were so lucky. Uh, When eclipses happen, they happen on 91st Street and Broadway. We don't even have to cross the street. We go out of the building, make a left, and then make another left and go down about three quarters of a block. And there. Oh, so going home was not a big deal. No, no, not not a big deal. It was just uh, a Well, block. that really sounds like some kind of a dissonance. Wow. Well, I would call it that. But, you know, just in sharing it with you, uh, the idea came to me that, of course, all balance is in the inner ear. And if uh, the fluids uh, in my inner ear were affected by gravitational forces, that would make a perfect uh, explanation of, of the uh, the spinning part. Unless the Robert, sidewalk is, well, is that Andrew? Yeah, yeah. Robert, you're also, I mean, kind of like what I talked about, stepping into a different bubble. Yeah. Maybe oh. a whole new reality is emerging and we're having to totally readjust. Oh, I believe so. Well, Maria, where exactly did it come in in the United States? Did you have an exact point on the eastern seaboard? Uh, no, because they're like lines, uh, big lines. The whole of the influence line is influenced. So it's not one place. It kind of goes right the way along the line. As if, as if energy is going along. Is it a whole degree or a quarter of a degree? Because a degree is like 69 miles. Like a, a latitude. I mean, a latitude is 69. 
Wow. Yeah, and, and if you imagine that eclipses in, in genetic uh, land astrology, you kind of make that orb a bit wider, David. So you're actually going, you know, about 70, 80 degrees. You add to the orb of influence because it's a powerful event. Right, so you don't have an exact center of Well, that. all right, if, if the Earth is spinning at roughly 1,000 miles an hour, and that corresponds to 15 degrees, then 30 degrees is 2,000 miles, 60 degrees is 4,000 miles. These aren't lines, these are areas. But it still would be an arc and it would have a center, right? And, you know, it still has an... Uh, well, remember sense. the physics works in meridians, so it's not an arc. It's not like a. It's not like a spotlight. It's not like the physical projection of a solar eclipse, which is like an ellipse, you know, with with an umbra and then a penumbra. This is affecting all those meridians from the north pole to the south pole in that quadrant, and it spans tens of degrees. And that night, the eclipse was literally antipodal to the sun meaning in the center of the shadow with the united states right positioned in the middle of that geometry so we got the full effect of the eclipse even major networks broke into their normal news wraps and showed television pictures to everybody watching so those people that were not aware there was an eclipse went oh my god there's an eclipse and they went outside where they could and they watched television when they couldn't and in other words consciousness was focused by the media on the eclipse as the eclipse was occurring and other things were happening that made robert very dizzy in new york and and the pleiades right behind it and isn't where was uh muamua headed when it left i mean it came Pegasus, from Pegasus. Pegasus. It was heading to it, Pegasus, it, and it came it, from it, Pleiades. It came, no, 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 no. It came from Lyra. It plunged. It came from Lyra, 30, right? Thirty-three right, right. degrees, remember, because yeah. it was sent. You know, um, uh, Andy Loeb is right. It was sent. He just hasn't a clue as to who sent it or how they did it or any of that. He's so mainstream in his out-of-the-box thinking. So mainstream. Yeah, he's very mainstream, but at least he's admitted um, that that we're dealing with something. Yes, that and is... that's, he opened the door to people to think, because people need to see permission to think outrageously. Yeah, but we think of Artemis also as the bee goddess. There's a book I read um, called The Lost Gospel that equates Artemis and Mary Magdalene, Diana, and and as one singular, you know, energy, you know, divine feminine energy that 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 is also and very and Isis. I mean many right. people don't many people don't know. But um I happen to know this because I was ordained as a priestess of Isis a few years ago. And when I went to that ordination uh uh was a three day uh experience uh that culminated in the ordination. Um, this was um, at, it's called Isis Oasis in Geyserville, California, north of San Francisco. Um, what I learned there uh, is that there were priestesses of Isis and priestesses of Mary Magdalene at, the, at those, that three-day ceremony. 
And what I learned was, in order to become a priestess of Mary Magdalene, you must first become a priestess of Isis, because Mary Magdalene was in Egypt, and she became a priestess of Hadrian. Okay, guys, we are at the bottom of the hour, and I will just conclude the segment by saying that, of course, there is a spacecraft named after Orion, which is headed for Artemis tonight. If Artemis is a metaphor for Isis, Isis is part of the Orion Horus, Isis, Triumvirate. NASA cannot do anything without a ritual. You're on the other side of midnight. My name's Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month. 33 cents a day. Support the broadcaster to provide you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone. Last half hour to go on this Saturday night, Sunday morning edition of The Other Side of Midnight. I've been trying to set up the premise that this incredible anomaly of the midterm 2022 elections for the House and Senate that did not turn out the way any of the pundits really prognosticated that it should turn out that went again all historical precedent that saw an overwhelming turnout of women and women in long lines. And the election didn't just affect the House and Senate in Washington. It affected state houses and state offices up and down the ballot all over the country. The first lesbian woman was elected uh, mayor of Boston. In Massachusetts, I'm sorry, governor, governor, I'm sorry, governor, and the state legislature, House and Senate in Michigan turned after 40 years into Democratic control, 40 years, two generations. And of course, the candidates 
for governor, secretary of state, attorney general, etc. All were won in Michigan down the ballot by women. And, of course, Artemis, the keynote, the mythological imprimatur of our return to the moon, which in mission number three, in a couple, three years, will carry the first woman to the surface of the moon and a representation of the full human race to the lunar surface, to the lunar south pole, where astonishing things are waiting to be found, is spearheaded under the aegis of women, of Isis, the Orion Triumvirate. Okay, this is our kind of free-for-all section. Whatever you want to talk about, whoever you want to talk about it, respect. Who wants to go first? I do. <laughs> okay. Well, we all will. We'll all go first. Okay. Who was the, who was the loudest in the first one? Me. Oh, David. Well, David, me. Okay. Okay. I just wanted to finish something with Barbara because Barbara, I don't know if you're aware of this, but the the measurement of the Queen's chamber in the Great Pyramid is ten by ten by ten royal cubits, and and Moses's original tabernacle holy place was ten by ten by ten cubits. That's right. And, no, sorry, the, the holy of holies, and the holy place is ten by twenty, which is the king's chamber, by the way. So the king's chamber and the queen's chamber have identical measurements to the original um, holy of holies and tabernacle of Moses, and and I find that fascinating. And the the there's a new study done, I don't know if you've seen this yet, Richard, where they've used satellites to transmit frequencies into the pyramid, and they found multiple new chambers with fairly accurate measurements. There, there's a lot of new chambers in there and passageways. You need to send me links because I haven't seen any of that. Oh, yeah, I've got the whole paper on this. So, the, the, again, the fact that there's a connection between ISIS and Mary Magdalene and 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 Jesus, and also, of course, being raised in Egypt, Jesus was, was raised there. Um, and I've read a lot of really good studies on, on Mary Magdalene, the Lost Gospel, um, by, you know, trying to remember the author's name. But also, what I've done is looked very, very closely at the map. And when, when you look at the, the Washington Monument as a monopole antenna, it turns out it's it's a high octave of middle A432, just uh, hertz, which is – I have a whole thing on my website at davidsreader.co on the Washington Monument and how when the monument went up and it was erected and plugged into the, the Tesla Schumann you know, resonance power source of the earth, it gave off a, a series of A notes that caused the greatest inventions in the history of the world all to suddenly be born – within a certain radius, including Bell Labs uh, and Tesla and all of his inventions, all of a sudden everything happened because of that frequency. And so I'm saying... So it's like the monument was created as a hyper-dimensional amplifier to create this society of invention, of egalitarianism, of seeking a better tomorrow, of living up to the idea that we're a work in progress, all of that because maybe of a connection, an amplified connection to hyper-dimensional sources. 
Exactly, and and that's why when I measured the wavelength of the breastplate of Aaron, it's 432 million hertz. So it's a still it's a 432. By the way, did you say that was made of sapphire? No, the the the, the tablets with the Ten Commandments in the Jewish Talmud are made of sapphire, and they're square. I All right, now, now, so sapphire is an aluminum oxide. Right. And it's do you know? Hard. Do you know that the? Well, that's 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 irrelevant for what I'm going to say. Because aluminum is the most active hyperdimensional material on Earth. Right. And you mentioned that's the, 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 the peak of the capstone on the monument is aluminum. Yes. When they were Which swimming, is sapphire, in, in right? The, in the 1800s. No, it's actually pure cast aluminum at a time when making, you know, liquid aluminum, you know, getting it out of the, the ores, melting it, and casting it into some, an object, a metallic object was more expensive than gold or platinum or any other precious metal. Aluminum, you know, solid aluminum, aluminum structure, artifact, was the most rare, priceless material on the planet. And that's at the very tip, the little pyramidion at the top of the Washington Monument in, put in place in, I think, 1888. See, what measures this exactly, Barbara, as, as a monopole antenna, the, the height of the monument, this is going to blow your mind. So you take two circles whose diameter is the height of the monument, and you cross them to form a Vesca Pisces. The height of that Vesca Pisces, Pisces is the finished height of the Great Pyramid of Egypt. And you know what else is that height? You're not going to believe this. The Vatican is to the top of the cross is the height of the Great Pyramid without the capstone. Without it, and and what's in front of the Vatican, a Egyptian obelisk. Well, they stole an obelisk from. Right, they stole an obelisk, but what's and that's tuned to four forty four. I did the math on that, a four forty four. But the Washington Monument is a is an is an obelisk tuned to four thirty two, and and that is incredible because it goes all the way. And remember, the presidency of the United States, as we have traced on many many shows is connected directly to Horus in the Orion Horus Isis triumvirate. Uh, the president is supposed to be Orion or Horus in a reincarnated state. So the election was really all about who was be- going to become president in 2024, leading into that window when things, according to Georgia and my sources, are going to get extraordinarily different and better well i think the 2024 election uh because artemis is going up in what 2024 with the first female astronaut yep it just has to be the case it's in the zeitgeist well it's been designed to be the case this look remember fdr in politics there's no such thing as coincidence um what i just wanted to say is that it feels like in the hyperdimensional zeitgeist that a woman will be president of the United States next. Oh, now that's opening up a can of <clears throat> ravioli. Artemis, <laughs> the next president. Yes. Hey, I, to I say- think it would be a wonderful thing. I would love to see – Here, this, this is quite mind-blowing to me as a personal experience. The morning of the Capitol – Insurrection, January 6th. My mother was a California state attorney. She died 
And that morning, at 4 o'clock in the morning, 3 o'clock in the morning, Pacific time, I saw my mother with my own eyes. And within hours, it was all going down. I saw her. I, I, she sat on the bed. She looked at me. And this is like oh almost God. three years after she died. And it, it, was she telling me something? It also happens to be Orthodox Christmas Eve. And so I didn't know if there was a connection there. You know that January 6th is Orthodox Christmas Eve. Right, right. I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. So it, it was a very powerful date. And, and you know, I, I have mixed thoughts about that. I'm not going to go into that. I'm more into the the energies that come in that influence consciousness and open portals in the mind and in consciousness collectively that, that create a shift for an entire nation. I mean, the what happened in America that is so different than anywhere else in the world. Like I, 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 I came back from a trip from India in 1996 and I was trying to figure it out. Why didn't these other countries figure out plumbing, electricity, airplanes, com- computers, television, everything happened in America first. And then I narrowed it down to all these inventions suddenly appear, including Alexander Graham Bell on the telephone in the upper eastern Atlantic, right as the monument is, is being erected. And it's nearly finished and all of a sudden everything. I mean, Carl Jansky, you name it, Motorola, everything happened within a certain radius of that monument and the rest of the world falls. The rest of the world got the patents, spun off new ideas, but it still happened there first. And and I attribute it to the energies that that obelisk brought in. And who designed it? It was actually Washington, the first president of the United States idea, but its finished height was was, was a very guided um, to, to, to calibrate that frequency was very, very guided. When you, when you study the story of how the how the height comes to its final final inch, and and then you calibrate the the way you calibrate the frequency of a monopole antenna is you take the height times four, which is like a square. You take the speed of light in the same measurement that you measured that in, divided by the the total measurement of the square, and that's your frequency. Then to to see what octave it's at, you just keep dividing it by two, by two, by two, by two, and you come to 432.3 um, hertz. And you're like, oh, my God, it's a 432 octave tuner. So I did the same thing for the obelisk in the Vatican and, and measuring the height of of, of St. Peter's Basilica, and which is the height of the pyramid without its apex. And that, that was designed by Michelangelo and others. So they were they obviously knew something the the architects that that nobody nobody could really understand. And I think I even did a measurement on the capital in cubits using the right royal cubit because the book of Ezekiel says a cubit is a cubit plus a hand. That's a royal cubit, but it's in the Bible they don't call it a royal cubit. The the measurement of the US capital is nearly 432 cubits and uh, on the inner wall. I'm only interested in the inner dimension. And it's very close, although I can't get it exact from measurements available online. So there's something masterful about how the design of, of these pillars that led to the, this awakening in consciousness in 432 and the breastplate of Aaron. So, do you do anybody remember a Star Trek episode in the first, you know, the original Star Trek piece of the action? 
No, but I, I oh, I, it's, it's hysterical. Day, I, um, I'll give you a short summary because it's directly relevant to what David just said. Um, the idea is the Enterprise visits this alien world, and there's a humanoid species, and they're trying to find the remnants of a crashed Federation starship, and they beam down under in, in disguise. And they discover that the ship did crash, and unfortunately, in contradiction to the prime directive, the, the, the crew that survived intermarried, which in, implicates families and biology and all that in our model, with this race of beings on this other planet, and imbued them with a culture which wound up centered in the 1920s in Al Capone, Chicago, with... <laughs> turf wars between big bosses and all that and everything goes back to an enshrined white covered book sitting on a gold stand in the biggest boss's office and they keep through the show to the book the book which was the log from the starship that crashed and they had no idea what the book said in terms of the reality of the Federation and the galaxy and all that, but they followed the precepts of the book in terms of regulations and cultural norms and all that, even not understanding the origins and derivations, they followed the template of the book. I think, David, what we're seeing in these wondrous architectural uh, echoes of the physics, someone following the book, the sacred text, the enshrined papyri, the, the, you know, the sacred documents, whatever, without having a clue as to what it really means, but they're following it because it's from the book. You're talking about the obelisks, are you? Yes, and the, and the pyramid designs and the interior chambers and the measurements and all this interlocked geometry, which we know has real import in the physics, but they didn't. They were simply following the book. See, I want that, to say something about the monument. The go, Washington go. Monument is not complete. I've seen the original plans for the Washington Monument, and the completed monument had a Stonehenge all around it, encircling the base. Yeah, it was, wow, have, it was supposed to have a colonnade with all kinds of pillars. It looked like hell. But the question is, what would it have done to the physics? They, that, that, I think it's under imbalance. I think it's too much male energy. And the other thing... No, I, there's, there's a feminine energy. You have to understand, the monument, remember, yeah. it, its diameter forms two circles. Look on the grass on the monument. You'll see the Vesca Pisces in the grass. The circle is the womb. And, and when they cross and form the Vesca Pisces, the height of the Vesca Pisces, which is the male phallus, is the height of the Great Pyramid. So the mother is actually the circle the two circles that cross that form the Vesca Pisces. So you really do have the masculine and the feminine. Because and, and you see this on the CIA Corona satellite photograph that uses one of its first targets, not Soviet missile bases, but the Washington Monument and the Vesica Pisces there uh, alongside the mall in downtown. Right, it's right DC. on the grass. I wanted to ask, uh, I wanted to ask uh, Barbara, what is the most significant obelisk in Egypt? The most significant obelisk in Egypt? That's a very good question. Yeah, I, you know what? I'm, 
I'm trying to think of a picture of a single obelisk in Egypt, and I can't think of one. It's probably the it's it's, it's probably the one it's probably the one at Karnak. I I would say it's it's and there are two, and they flank the portal at Karnak. Karnak, yes, I I would think so. Probably Karnak, but there may have been larger ones. I know that there is a huge in the quarry. There was a much larger one, and they and they couldn't move it because it broke. But you should see the measurement on that one. The yeah. measurement on the one lying in the ground that never was erected is perfect proportions to the Great Pyramid. It's um, <laughs> again, I, I use Le Miserier's math right down to the laser measurements to do my math, and they're the 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 Royal Cubit at twenty point six oh one inches times two hundred and eighty is the exact exact finish height of the Great Pyramid at four hundred eighty. Point six nine feet, according to La Missouria, with not a penny left over, not one decimal left over. So, and also with that that royal cubit, you end up getting the finished. Um, okay, if you take the the height of, of Noah's Ark, three hundred cubits, you get golden number. You get six zero one eight three, as in one to one point six one eight zero three three nine eight eight seven, being the golden ratio. So you see. Again, the golden number starts to appear if you have the right uh, royal cubit to inches. And then the measurement, according to Ron Wyatt, of the remains of Noah's Ark was 515 feet. And if you convert that to feet, it, it's 515.025. So you, you've got, once you have the right cubit, and then you go to the Great Pyramid's Queen's Chamber, you're seeing the exact measurement of Moses' original Holy of Holies. And then at the time of Solomon, that doubles, which is an octave, because doubling is an octave. And then you see the holy place is the great is the King's Chamber, 10 by 20 of those longer cubits. So that means there's unification in the pyramid to the God of the Bible, which is where the Ten Commandments come from, which is where our justice system comes from. I mean, that's the, that's the foundation. But what's missing is the feminine. When you read the Gnostic literature, you find the feminine everywhere and how it was ripped off and stolen. And maybe that's what's coming back, you know. I don't think it's maybe. I think Barbara is right on because yeah, I've been ex- I've been expecting the feminine wave for years, trying to figure out when, and it's now going to be. I think uh, was it you, Barbara, that said that we're going to elect our first female president in 2024? Inevitably. I think it would be, and wouldn't it be hysterical if it was Nancy Pelosi? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, look, if there's anybody I would ever want to go to war under, it would be Nancy Pelosi, who is such a genius general. Look at what she did with only five votes and then compare that with what um, uh, uh, McCarthy is going to do with maybe three or four more. Richard, Richard, could I comment on this? So we were just talking about ancient structures, measurements, and very you know real world 3D things, and this idea of of of, of using hyperdimensional physics to stimulate a place like the United States, which was what I was getting at, was that it's a very different place, and it's got that promise. And I'd like Georgia to possibly answer this: that is the answer, is the transformation, not so much in a physical place, but what's coming is through 
the human body and through the human soul? Is there something that's going to free itself from all of this sort of three-dimensional um, constructs and, and liberate us even higher? I don't know, Georgia, is there anything there in the esoteric literature that speaks of this? Actually, yes, there is. And uh, it has to do with humanity taking its next step in consciousness. Um, there are certain lineages that talk about a new kingdom being born within the three lower worlds of physicality, emotion, and mind. And that next kingdom, you know, you've got the model of, of an acorn, right? It's got a pattern of an oak tree within it. You put it in the ground, you give it the right sunlight and water. It's not going to grow into a willow. It's going to grow <laughs> into an oak tree because mm -hmm. the pattern is within it. Well, esoterically, a planetary life has seven kingdoms uh, related to the seven chakras. And our planet is still unfolding its uh, kingdoms within the three lower worlds. And seven and the, and tetrahedral next, spins of the tetrahedron. And the next kingdom to be... Or queendom. Or uh, yeah. <laughs> the next kingdom to emerge... Uh, is called the kingdom of conscious souls or the enlightened consciousness of humanity. And we are all the midwives of that because it's in process now. Um, I think it, uh, it's really important, uh, the point that Maria made, to shift the prime meridian to Stonehenge because that makes so many other things fall into place. And in terms of what Barbara was talking about, about uh, the rise of women, I remember um, that one of the comments by a Japanese admiral at Pearl Harbor was they were afraid they awakened a sleeping tiger. And I thought when Roe was overturned that there's a sleeping tiger that is not now Watch awake. Out. Yeah. Yeah, but Andrew, the quick answer to you, Andrew, is yes, we are midwifing the next kingdom emerging within humanity, and that is the kingdom of conscious souls or uh, humanity's spiritual component. And it's, off, and it's putting us off balance. Our equilibrium is sometimes getting spun <laughs> like a top. Yeah, I, I'd like to close by adding uh, a fact that was in the New York Times in the past week, which was pretty mind-blowing. It was in last Tuesday's uh, Science Tuesday in the New York Times, and I will send it to Keith to put on, to add to my items. And everybody needs to read this. It turns out that in the next few days or a couple of weeks or you know, um, that all of the countries in the world uh, their representatives are going to be voting on whether to remove the leap year from the time measurement and uh, to go to a purely atomic clock measurement. And the way they, the article described it is that it would, um, it would separate the timekeeping system um, between the landmass and the heavens. For the first time and that get this you're going to love this maria um, it's the british who are against it because they want to keep their 
uh, Greenwich Meridian, but they would have to give it up. <laughs> and when is this election to take place? It's coming up imminently. It'll be in the article I'll send you. Okay. True sidereal time. I suppose. I mean, it's a bit complicated. I had to read it three times, and I still don't completely understand it. No, I but understand the, it. It's, but the, the gist was that it's the Brits don't want to give it up. <laughs> Well, the 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 Greenwich he Prime Meridian controls, controls the universe. The Greenwich Prime Meridian was a political construct anyway, right? And like on Mars, the Prime Meridian is through the DNM pyramid at Sidonia. The original Prime Meridian was through the Great Pyramid in the Giza. But Richard, you've got something huge here with the cube being a double tetrahedron. If you go back to your Holy of Holies in Solomon's temple and then further back to the queen's chamber equaling Moses's original tabernacle, a 10 by 10. The real dimension of a cube is the double tetrahedron. That's the hidden dimension yes. of the cube. Yes. And that takes us back to Tonga. It takes us, which was an energy transfer event to our planet. And the fact that we would get another, a 7.3, I, I believe it was election day, on I went on USGS and it's it's 19.5 degrees is right there right, right within the epicenter the innermost ring of the epicenter. Why do you cursor. think George called it a tremor in the force? And That's again, what, this was this this was on a day when people were meditating all over the world. Yep, yep. And the tetrahedron formed by that anchor at 19.5 across the Atlantic to the other meridian Maria talked about that goes up right along the east coast of the United States. So I it probably goes right through Washington, D.C. No, 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 no. It's, it's, it's to the east, but it's within oh, the, the boundary. In other words, if you think of a tetrahedron inside the sphere of the earth, that, that face of the tetrahedron spans the entire North American continent. Canada included. Hey guys, we are out of time. We are out of time. Okay, many of these players and all the world's a stage will be showing up tomorrow night when we do our part two, which is Artemis and the women of Artemis and the fact that NASA has been completely transformed in the last 50 years since Apollo by women the Artemis generation. So until tomorrow night, same time, same bad channel, remember, third star on the left, straight on till morning. Good night, everyone.